folks. XQ quality, better than HQ, but no one knows what the X stands for, except for extremely good. <clears throat> Here we go. Welcome to episode 210 of Channel Massive. Son I of a gun. It. Can you can you believe it, Mark? We're we're reliving history. It is a deja vu experience. <laughs> so yeah, listeners, if you follow us, or wait, I, I should rephrase that. If you follow me on Twitter, <laughs> which is twitter.com slash this is Noah, you might know that we did record an episode last week and we recorded it with Jason, and it was a really great episode it was funny it was so cool to record with jason in person but we had a technical issue with jason's mic that pretty much botched the audio all the way through and would have been very painful to your ears to uh, listen yeah. to <laughs> so i debated it with mark and it's like uh i could put something out there but i just really couldn't clean it up enough so unfortunately you hardcore Jason fans out there and i know there are plenty of you will have to wait until a future episode where we can bring him back and put him on the appropriate tethered hardware, <laughs> and we'll have beautiful audio quality. Yes. Yes. So your hosts in this episode are the usual. I'm Noah. I am Mark. And we have a special guest, a guest host that we have never had on the episode before, which is always really exciting to me. I love having new folks on. You may remember from last October when we spoke with Daenerys, <laughs> as we nicknamed her, <laughs> or Denara, her real name, <laughs> who's really into Dota. And this time we actually have her husband here, Dan. Welcome, Dan. Hello. I am the Khal Drogo to Daenerys. I was going to say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, and this is not the same Dan as when we had Bob and Dan on, so nope. just in case people have razor-sharp memories. <laughs> This is a different Dan, so maybe it would be better to call him Drogo or something. I don't know. <laughs> Drogo, Dan. But like Daenerys, Dan is a big Dota fan. In fact, you got Daenerys into playing Dota, right, Dan? Indeed I did. Uh, I think that was back in, oh gosh, two point something. Oh, wow. What version is it on now? I don't even know. Uh, six point something? Oh, wow. I'm not sure now. Are you are you all both playing Dota still? Uh, still, uh, yeah. Though I was really disappointed because the um, uh, Blizzard booter, I guess it, it doesn't it didn't work anymore once I upgraded to Lion, which was so sucky. Um, so no, I cannot. But I I play vicariously through her. <laughs> she occasionally does too. <laughs> so you were you were playing on the Mac. I was, yeah. Oh, wow. And now it doesn't work after you upgraded with the newest OS. That's too bad. Yeah. I checked it out online, too. Apparently, a lot of folks get stuck in the same situation. Have you followed the Dota 2 any? A little on? bit. Just kind of waiting for the lawsuits, really. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like the lawsuits kind of didn't work out. They fizzled out. <laughs> yeah. 
they settled out a court over the naming, and they're like, all right, whatever, make your stupid game, Ice Frog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, Mark, you've actually played the beta. Yep. Two. yep. What, what was your impression of it? Well, it's just, it's tough after playing um, so much League of Legends. It's just, it's it's a step backward, you know, it's slower, it's, it's you know, I don't know. And that's my opinion, of course, that League of Legends is kind of currently the ultimate uh, evolution of Dota. So it's, you know, it's kind of like going from a, um, like a, a high performance motorcycle back to like a moped. Um, <laughs> so I just... I just couldn't. I couldn't hang with it. I I played two games. I I played the first game and I thought, okay, I've just got to you know adjust. And I tried another game and I just and I played with like Clinks the Bone Fletcher and I was like, I can't handle this anymore. And I don't know why I should, frankly. So, you know, the nostalgia of what I had experienced all those games playing Dota. You know, it, it didn't really even trigger that. So. It just wasn't for me. That is what surprises me. So, Dan, Mark is the person who got me into playing Dota and Warcraft and Starcraft and all those other great Blizzard games. And we got really good at it. We'd, we'd play it at work and we'd play it at <laughs> parties. And it was really fun. And I remember each of us, because there was a whole group of us, we got rather proficient at several different uh, heroes. And yeah. Now going back, it's like wow, it just feels so complicated. And there's there are hardcore League of Legends fans and hardcore Dota fans, both of which who will spit on the other game. You know, Dota fans will like to say that League of Legends is dumbed down and but, but it's one, market friendly. And one thing that both can agree on is that Heroes of New Earth sucks. <laughs> yeah. So they've got that. <laughs> they do have a common ground. <laughs> yeah. So Dan has actually played. League of Legends with us at a previous LAN party. I can't remember exactly. Or did you get a chance to play it? I can't recall. It was all confusing. You know, yeah, it, it was all just a big, massive gaming. Uh, I did not get a chance to play LOL. I was playing the other, like, zombie shoot 'em up thing. Oh, that's right. You were playing Left 4 Dead. Okay. It was confusing. There were so many games going on at once, I, I couldn't keep track of them. But this is a huge tangent to one of the big reasons we're excited to have Dan with us tonight is... We're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons. Dan is the DM of my second ever Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And he and Dinara have been doing a super awesome job doing a, a monthly hosting. Dinara creates incredible food, and Dan has this huge epic story that he has all our characters working through. And it's just been a lot of fun. And Dan's also been looking into the new D&D rule set, D&D Next, that's being created. So for our roundtable topic near the end of the episode, number 210, we're going to be talking about Dungeons & Dragons' new rule set that's being defined. What are our impressions of it? What do we, where do we think it should go, potentially? And we'll also just talk about what it's like playing Dungeons & Dragons in our age range versus where some of us are more familiar. We, we played it when we were younger and high school and stuff like that. And just comparing those different times in our lives and what we think of the game now and then. Mm -hmm. But before all of that, we have all of our regular sections. We have intro get in first with a lot of news stories. And in this week's episode, we're going to break them up into what's right, what's wrong and the future. 
And then after that, we're going to get into what we're playing, some general geekery, and then, of course, the aforementioned roundtable. If you have any thoughts on Dungeons & Dragons, or you really love Dota or Dota 2 or League of Legends, or any of the things we've already mentioned, or any things that we're about to talk about, send them into mail. M-A-I-L. At channelmassive.com. And if you want to dispute my statement on Heroes of New Earth, I welcome it. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he just pounded his chest when he said that. <laughs> yeah. Clinked your uh, your swords together and... <laughs> yeah. I said, bring it. <laughs> I unsheathed my weapon. Wherever it may be. Can't reach my sword. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> That's a personal problem. Well, <laughs> you think I should lose some weight? <laughs> I didn't mean that as a metaphor or anything. <laughs> well, and as it turns out, it's like I'm, I think I'm the only slouch out of everybody who's on Channel Massive. Mark's exercising, Jason's exercising, Dan does Aikido, and Denara does insane ultimate frisbee all the time. <laughs> Yeah. And I play Mass Effect, so fuck you. <laughs> I am on. Good to take a stand. Yeah. I call it couch all... surfing. <laughs> but we'll put that aside for now so that we can continue. <laughs> First up, what's right? We have talked about 38 Studios and Kingdoms of Amalur and Kurt Schilling, all that stuff since Kurt first founded his little studio all the way up to the horrible bankruptcy and all the other drama that's played out. But finally, one of the positive things to come out of all that fallout has finally come to fruition when big, huge games, I believe the people who made the single player RPG based in the 38, uh, 38 studios, MMO world kingdoms of Amalur, when they made that, they got, shut down during the whole bankruptcy fiasco and then when that happened epic said epic the people that make unreal and gears of war said hey you know what we'll just make a studio up in maryland so at least all these people who've moved to rhode island and this all this other stuff to be part of this amateur thing can actually have jobs and that has finally happened epic has opened its maryland studio and they have employed a, a portion of folks from big teams. I'm not sure how many, but the new studio instantly is called Impossible Studios. I don't know what's in the logo, though. It looks like kind of like a badger pig with wings. Or something. It is a badger pig. It's a wings bad. It's an angelic badger pig. Can't you tell? <laughs> Man, in your pig. monster's manual. Duh. <laughs> badger pig. Badger pig. <laughs> and the first project for the Impossible Studios is working on some Infinity Blade gameage for iOS. So a big change, potentially, for some of those folks. After they worked on a lot of console video game action, now they're going to do some iOS action, but I'm sure it's really exciting and very appreciated. It's a unicorn bear pegasus. It's like a winged unicorn bear, I think. Oh. I can't I can't make it out. You've got yeah. that. I'm <laughs> standing on, on a... What's that? Oh, sorry, some riff on a man bear pig? I think maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Man bear pig hungers. Perhaps, <laughs> well, what's right side of things, but 
Rhode Island is now the proud owners. <laughs> well, I wouldn't say they're proud, but they <laughs> are the owners. <laughs> and who is that author that works there? I don't remember. Ari Salvatore? Rhode Island owns it all. The citizens of Rhode Island own the kingdom of Amalur. They own the Reckoning, and they own the MMO. And Todd McFarlane, too? And maybe, if they're lucky. <laughs> Price. Okay, I shouldn't make too light of it, but yeah, millions and millions of debt, dollars of debt that turned into these game assets. Currently, it's predicted that Rhode Island will try to sell this to somebody else. But in the meanwhile... Who knows? Maybe they'll start releasing games on their own. Wouldn't, wouldn't <laughs> that be cool to have like, like a state job, you know, with all the benefits that government jobs like that have? But you're, but you're developing video games. That'd be so hard to explain. Like, yeah, I work for Rhode Island. What do you do? Uh, you work on like, you know, nuclear reactors or civil engineering projects, like building roads and dams. No, I'm developing a new rated, you know, in game. And you know, I don't know. It'd be pretty cool. We're still trying to decide if it's going to be subscription-based or free-to-play. Yeah, we're looking at a microtransaction model. We're not quite sure. Kind of like Tetris, but it's in a game. Yeah. (laughs) It's a a Tetris MMO. It's totally original. (laughs) (laughs) And instead of the cool loft thing for the startups, you you just have a beige room with a water cooler in the corner. Yeah, it's like totally office-spaced out. That would be awesome. Lights, yes. (laughs) I like it. MMOs made by bureaucracy. Yeah. Better than that. Whenever I press this button, a bridge opens up somewhere down the river. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Our next for the what's right section, this is, I personally feel this is a what's right thing, is Bioshock Infinite, which was recently delayed into 2013 so that extra polish and development could be put into the game so that the final product could come out, which a lot of people interpreted as, hmm, forced multiplayer. Well, apparently what some of the multiplayer modes that are in Bioshock Infinite, maybe not all of them, but some of them have been axed shortly following the departure of a couple key staff members from Irrational Games. I, I, I'm a fan of this frankly, because I loved the original Bioshock game and the second Bioshock game introduced multiplayer. But for me, it still remains a franchise that just, just doesn't need the multiplayer. Just, I don't want it. I want to have the cool single player adventure. I don't want to run around shooting people. Yeah. That, a multiplayer always feels like an afterthought on these games and as well, it should be because they should be concentrating on the single player experience and they're, it's a it's a market saturated with games that are designed for multiplayer that are really good at it. So you're not going to be able to compete with like, you know, Battlefield or something like that with your your BioShock multiplayer mode that you've, you know, spent a whopping, you know, 400 hours on total development time. So why do it? Why not just focus on the the the, you know, the the thing that the game really shines at. So, yeah, I totally agree. Now, one thing that Mark and I might miss, but we'll never know because it's been axed, is that one of the multiplayer modes was actually a tower defense type thing. <laughs> Don't know how that would have been made. And the other one was actually a, a co-op mode of some sort, but that could also mean horde mode, which it seems like every freaking game that comes out now has a multiplayer horde mode. Mass Effect 3 has horde mode. Gears of War has horse, started the horde mode, so I'm like, eh. Horror mode? Word. That sounds horrible. <laughs> like, what happens if you get like if they capture you? You have to like, wow. 
<laughs> we shall stand united against the oncoming horde. <laughs> Watch out for the whores. They're sneaky. True. Coming up from the sewers. <laughs> Slingshots made from Hey, thongs. sailor. <laughs> Got some money for a girl? Yeah, see, that could be really bad. I don't know. I don't think they should do that. I think this was the right decision. Circle of Dante's Inferno game. You could be attacked by um, whores, essentially, except they were totally uh, mutated monster whores, where and they attacked you with like tentacles and like a, a scorpion tail that came out of their crotch. Oh, so it's like like a hentai kind of tentacle sex kind of thing. Yeah, and all the while they do this like sexy moaning stuff. While they oh my god, that's just going too far. Nice little visual for everybody to go to bed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that that'll yeah. I won't have nightmares now. Thank you. And the last story in our what's right actually comes courtesy of Dan, who is a big fan of Paizo. Care to invite listeners, Dan? Sure. Uh, yeah, Peter Atkinson. Atkinson. Um, he's the former CEO of Wizards of the Coast. Um, you know, he was the one that helped lead the charge for the OGL, You know, one of those people that really bought into the open gaming license, which became D&D 3.x, you know, 3.0 or 3.5. And then, of course, now Pathfinder is basically using that same, um, same version of the game, just slight tweaks here and there. Uh, but uh, you know, he's the dude that also owns Gen Con, um, he's starting another company related to RPGs now, and they're not focusing on games, at least at first. Uh, they're doing a film called The Last Paladin. Apparently it's going to be a web film, which is interestingly based on an actual D&D game he once had. Um, they wrote about it on, on, the, on The Escapist. That's pretty so, cool. I, I, you know, when I hear that, it, what, what about you? Do you? Can you guys think back to any D&D or tabletop role-playing games that you've played where you had wished or liked the idea of thinking of the story that you were playing through actually was turned into some kind of television series or miniseries or movie? I I had a few that were that bordered on it. I, I don't think I ever had any with a really, truly awesome DM where it was, you know, consistent, but there were moments that were definitely cinematic, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Pretty darn cool. How about you, Dan? I, I definitely, yeah, definitely did. Um, way back in the day, uh, playing Warhammer, fantasy role-playing game, which is so pretty and brutal. <laughs> anyway, like you just keep rolling up characters. Everybody dies all the time, you know. But I had this one guy who just could not die. And, uh, you know, so it, it was one of those times where he just kept getting into things and, and just was unkillable. Uh, and the DM was sometimes pissed off. He was like, Oh my God, you know, he was kind of like shaking his head. Like he, I thought for sure this would kill you. <laughs> wow. And uh, yeah, he was trying to kill him because he was a, he was a, uh, um, he was a slayer. He was one of the dwarf. Uh, oh, the he was a troll slayer. Yeah. Yeah. He was a lot of fun, man. I loved that guy. Rem- actually reminds me a lot of Gotrek for the Gotrek and Felix books. Oh, yes. On my reading list, I am forgotten, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> As I cruise into the third one of us now. 
Yeah, so that sounds really cool. I'm really interested to see how this film takes shape. Is it going to be animated in any way, or what's the presentation of it going to be? How fancy is it going to be? What type of effects are going to be in there? Is it going to be like the roll of D6 music video or what? I mean, it could be really cool in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I'm interested too. It's kind of intriguing. It's cool to see, you know, this guy's a CEO of a of a or was a former CEO of Wizards of the Coast, now Paizo, but you know, he obviously is a player of games and and passionate and that's a big difference from a lot of the, you know, C level folks who we cover. Um we're all about the games. Level folks. <laughs> you know, but you know what I mean, right? I mean it's like yeah. you know, a lot of them are just pure business and this guy yeah, they didn't get into it because of a passion for the games. Right, and apparently, you know, he had a vision to open up the the system, which was incredibly successful. Yeah. Um, which your normal CEO would be, I would, I believe, would be more like, you know, keep it closed and keep yeah, it, intellectual property. Don't let people steal it. Right. Super that's, do. Yeah, that's exactly what happened after he moved on at WotC too. Yeah. After a third edition, the uh, fourth edition removed the OGL. <laughs> wow. That was and, smart, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks a lot. You just made your own competitor because, you know, when you have something that's open like that where anyone can riff on it, everyone can publish whatever and support it, that means whatever you come up afterward has to be multiple awesome over that to make people want to just go ahead and move over. Um, right. And I guess it's... You know, that's a, I guess it's they're facing that same thing now too later on. But um, yeah. once they killed that, one of the biggest publishers that supported that uh, that old game system was Paizo, and they said, well, you know, they're not doing it anymore. So I guess we can just take this game and make our own from it. And now, at least in the last year, Pathfinder Paizo's game based on D and D is outselling D and D four point oh. I believe it. And they have all that adventure path stuff that they're doing, and it, it looks pretty cool. Looks really cool, yeah. actually. Way more compelling to me, thinking about maybe getting back into this kind of thing, to you know go with that company and what they're doing because they seem to be the actual future, versus whatever you know Wizards of the Coast is doing to fuck up the current franchise. So. <laughs> Which we will get into later at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of fucking things up, we're not going to get into the what's wrong area of Intergeddon. And I I thought the story was just great. It it kind of made me, it reminded me of Mark and his sense of humor. Uh, <laughs> Except it's real. It's a horrible thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because Mark's really good at coming up with really outlandish ideas that is just like, they're really funny because it'd be horrible if they were true, but you can still appreciate the evilness of them. <laughs> <laughs> this is just like one, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So what we're going to do is we're going to figure out how to pretend that we care. <laughs> we'll legitimize it. Yeah, exactly. The company in question that we're talking about is Intellectual Ventures, which is otherwise known as a massive patent troll. They're all about buying patents and then suing people for violating those patents, even though Intellectual Ventures actually hasn't developed anything related to those patents. They just own the rights to them. And so they're like, woohoo, free money. We're going to steal you for trying to actually make something based on a patent that we own, but ha, we're going to steal it from you. 
So how do you put a happy face on that type of business model? Well, I'll tell you how. <laughs> Let us know, Mark. <laughs> well, you come up with a VP of Global Good to help you to, uh, you know, be kinder and gentler to the world by, I don't know, being charitable. Maybe maybe that would work, perhaps. <laughs> so is this like a, this is an open job? Yeah. That any of us on the show could actually apply to. Yeah. I know that's that's the interesting thought is what would what 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 kind of applicant are they looking for? You know, um I think of Aaron Eckhart's character in Thank You for Smoking is yeah. like the perfect face for that position where he's smiling and just spouting off stuff and his and his logic is indisputable, but you know you're being like screwed somehow. <laughs> So yeah. I yeah that would be the guy they should they should hire. What well, was interesting about the job description is that this person would lead a team that quote and this is from GamePolitics.com would develop and deploy inventions to save lives in the developing world. So in other words, somebody who's going to just brainstorm more patents that probably don't actually get developed into anything. So instead of like buying patents, they'll just be making their own. But you know, people won't mind the lawsuits are related to them because it'll be about something. It'll be like curing cancer or something like that. Yeah. I'm surprised it's not VP of global greater good. Cause then they could really put their spin on it. You know, <laughs> well, sure. A lot of people were killed by that dam that we put up, but on the bright side, no fish were injured or something, you know, <laughs> it was good for their overall ecosystem. Um, I like the the best part. This is from GamePolitics.com, and the best part of it is the final sentence, which was, I'd imagine a serial killer has given a kitten a pet or two at least one time in his or her life. <laughs> <laughs> which puts it in perspective. It really does. <laughs> Moving on to some other disappointing news in the What's Wrong department. Uh I'm sure I, I'm pretty. I'm fairly certain that both of you guys are fans of Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, I am a, I am a sort of a fan. Is there, are his movies hit or miss for you? Yeah, some really work and some really fail. Like The Hobbit, I'm scared to death about this one. But he's not doing that one anymore, so that's back to Peter Jackson. Oh, I thought he was still directing, but Peter Jackson was the producer or something. Did that all change? Peter Jackson's taken over the whole thing and decided to oh. make, do a trilogy instead of two movies. Holy crap. Yeah, how much can you squeeze out of a little adventure? Maybe, <laughs> maybe Peter Jackson watched all of Guillermo del Toro's movies, and that's how he came to that conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> but Guillermo del Toro was also going to get into video games, regardless of his involvement with The Hobbit, and he had some really creepy, super dark horror video game plan called Insane, which THQ and Volition were going to publish and develop, respectively. Of course, THQ's been going through some very serious and stark financial issues over the last year. Share price has just been plummeting, and they kind of booted their last CEO, and now they have Jason Rubin from Naughty Dog, I believe is who I'm thinking of. I think I'm thinking of the right guy. Uh, he's their new CEO, and he's just been making some very painful and judicious cuts to everything that THQ does. Unfortunately, they're shifting away from the crappy social games that they were going to get into, but they've also canceled Insane, which is kind of a disappointment. 
And it looks like Warhammer 40,000 Dark Millennium, which was going to be their first oh, little adventure you. into uh, MMO, has been converted into just a normal RPG, and they'll be laying off... Uh, they ended up laying off 118 employees, unfortunately. Yeah, it's just been tons of cuts, and THQ definitely still has some really solid uh, franchises in its house. It's got Saints Row... And it's got Darksiders, and of course it's got Warhammer stuff, but uh, the 40K stuff at least, not the uh, stuff Games Workshop does. But um, <clears throat> I don't know. I'm kind of bummed about this. I was looking forward to a, a new, fresh horror game, especially from Guillermo del Toro. You'd know, if anything, it'd just be really creepy and weird-looking. It would be really unique. I mean, it would be one of those games where you're like, wow, that's really different. And the, there's not complete lost hope because they gave the rights back to Del Toro, so if he really was still committed to it, he could take it to another game development shop. And who knows, that may still happen. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Next up, I think the other week we talked about... Uh, Gabe, Gabe Newell. ...being <laughs> really angry about Windows 8 and saying that it was going to be an absolute catastrophe for the world. And part of his motivation for that, of course, is that Microsoft has suggested that you're not going to go getting Steam on your Windows 8. You're going to be using the Windows Live Store to buy games. You're going to be buying things through uh, X, Windows, or is it Xbox Games is now what they're going to call the, the games. Yeah, area. it's all confused. And I uh, coincidentally was just looking at all their game development offerings for developing on, you know, for their Xbox, for Windows 8, for their wireless um, or their, you know, their mobile phone. And it's a total clusterfuck from my point of view um, compared to other options. When you look at it, it's just like, oh, my God. I mean, they, you get to this page that says, which way do you want to go with this? You know, do you want to focus on Xbox or whatever? You make your choice. No matter what choice you make of the three choices you have, you then end up on a screen that has two choices, and and then and I can't remember what those are right now, but it's just kind of ridiculous. They don't. It's not making sense, right? And then you want to download like um, I don't know, like some development tool of theirs, and the links are all broken. And it's just, you know, it's Microsoft. You you know, you can definitely go to other parts of their websites that actually work as expected, but it's like a total clusterfuck right now. And I I don't understand what's going on with these guys. It's like they're having an identity crisis over Windows 8. Like, uh, how groundbreaking and, you know, uh, you know, tablet slash mobile centric are we going to make it look? Or how are we going to gravitate more towards the Xbox interface? But definitely we can't do anything even similar to the Windows 7 interface that the majority of the world loves, you know. So I, I don't know what they're doing. It's it's crazy. Sorry about that rant, everyone. I, I'm not sure. No, I think it's I legitimate. From. I mean, your opinions, because you're working on developing some uh, a game on your own, Allegedly. and as it turns out, <laughs> 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 other people aside from Gabe Newell have also gone on the record saying that they really aren't happy about Windows 8 with Rob Pardo, good old right? Pardo from Blizzard saying that it's not awesome for Blizzard either. And then we even have a guy from Stardock the CEO, Brad Wardell, who they, they made a really popular space RTS called Sins of the Solar Empire. Yeah, super popular. Uh, he wrote a really angry, I think it was like an angry blog post or something, and he used the word schizophrenic, obnoxious, nightmare. 
schizophrenic. That is the perfect it. adjective. Yeah. Well, yeah, because they're it's like they're simultaneously trying to evolve Windows Seven just because, and they're trying to match Apple feature for feature. They're trying to replicate Apple's ecosystem by like, oh, we're gonna have our own little walled garden, and oh wait, Xbox is really popular. So let's put that in there too. And oh, we can't forget about Windows Phone. And, and it's just like, it's a mess. Yeah. That was the thing to get their latest and greatest development tools for XNA and everything. You have to be running it on Windows 8. And it's like Windows 8 is just Windows 7 with a bunch of crappy interface tweaks. And it's, you know, and they're not for the better either. And it's like, you know, who are you fooling here? You're not fooling anyone with this. You're just, you know, you need to sell, you need to upgrade the world to Windows 8 and make some money on it. But it's not adding any value that I can discern. Have you gotten a chance it's, to try the beta yet? I haven't had to. Yeah, I hate it. It's oh, you did? Horrible. Oh. Yeah. So did you use a desktop style or touch style or both? Desktop style. Yeah, I did not like it. You know, that kind of really follows along with Microsoft, uh, their rhythm. They kind of like have a rhythm on their OSs. Like 98 was pretty okay. Windows ME, uh. Windows right. XP, okay. Windows Vista, <laughs> uh. Ah, train wreck, <laughs> yeah. Windows 7, best, best OS okay. they've ever made. 8, oh, yeah. it's a train wreck. And it's like, well, yep. well, you know, other people can do it, right? I mean, you go from, like, um, with the Mac Lion to Mountain Lion, hey, it's great. I don't see any issues there. You know, they didn't have to radically alter anything, and it's still good. But, Jesus, I, I just don't know what they're Aside up to. Aside from killing the Dota launcher. Well, what yeah. The fuck. <laughs> yeah. That's eh, a mixed throne. blessing. It killed my Frozen Throne. It's, I can't believe it did all that. I want to reinstall it and see if it's broken on Mountain Lion. That's crazy. Uh, why? Why, God? Why? Speaking of Apple, the co-founder yeah. Steve Wozniak got a little bit of a headline. And that this is funny come from Mr. Wozniak saying that he's basically fearful of the cloud. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's a short little thing. Yeah, he, his, his quote was, I really worry about everything going to the cloud. I think it's going to be horrendous. And uh, he said, he continued, with the cloud, you don't own anything. You already signed it away. And we've actually seen a really relevant story about this, Mark. Um, you remember that uh, Scott reported to us earlier? I don't know what you're talking about. No, just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> um, Scott, Scott <laughs> sent in a thing about identity theft, you know, where... Um, a hacker, all he wanted was this guy's three-letter Twitter name because he thought that would be cool. But all the collateral damage from him acquiring that were the, was the guy, you know, they 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 deleted his um, Gmail account. They leveraged his Gmail account to get information with which to get into uh, Amazon and to get into um, Apple. They they just deleted every, they wiped, remote wiped, with the the find me feature, I guess for iPhone, um, the his iPhone, his iPad, and it totally erased his Mac um, PowerBook, which had our MacBook Pro. I mean, which had um, all these you know pictures of family members who had died, and and like his I think his daughter's um, baby pictures up to one year old that he hadn't backed up because he was backing it up to the cloud, and it deleted everything on the cloud too. So he hadn't done anything offline; it was all cloud based, and it. It's just, you know, and this all was destroyed in a matter of minutes. Um, in fact, he just missed, like, he called in with to report a problem with this Mac at 30 minutes after the attackers had had called the um, the help uh, Apple de uh, help desk support. 
So there are some downsides to the cloud. Um, What's your stance on it, Mark? Are you are you a fan or a detractor? Or are you cautious? I have everything that like my digital library for you know games um, and apple or I shouldn't say games. So for games, I almost solely depend on Steam for that if I can, you know, or good old games. So those I guess are cloud based, even though you know I have what I've installed on my computer. But as far as things that um, like um, my music collection, I have that. You know, local storage, um, all the pictures of all my kids. I don't use the Apple um, or you know Apple's cloud or iCloud or whatever. Um, I don't use that at all. I keep it all um, local, um, and then I back everything up to the cloud. So I'm I'm using it for that. Um, you know, I have several terabytes that are getting backed up, um, but I do have everything locally. So the so you know if Carbonite, which is the cloud-based backup provider that I use, if they were to, you know, announce they'd lost everything, it wouldn't really matter because I have it locally. If you know, if my basement flooded the next day, I'd be like, shit, I didn't see that one coming. But otherwise, you know, it's kind of a mixture. Uh, I don't think just being totally afraid of the of you know cloud-based applications is a is the best idea. But definitely, if it's important to you, you should have it in multiple locations. Yeah. That's just being smart, too. Right, right. Yeah. You just can't put your faith in a false god like the cloud. (laughs) (laughs) The last interesting point in the what's wrong area is actually it opened up a whole Pandora's box for Mark. Oh, it did. That you've been just bottling up. You actually, Mark had a, a, a close encounter with this last week. When Jason was on the show, uh, he kind of decided to get on a soapbox that Old Republic was a failure. He really did, and and it was pissing me off because you know there's a lot of there's been a lot of articles um, where people are like you know the Swotar postmortem what went wrong, and then here's one from Gamma Sutra what went wrong with Star Wars: The Old Republic, and you know I think they're talking about what went wrong as far as the game in general. You know, what were their, what, what issues did they have? Was there, did they not take advantage of monetization options, uh, you know, as well as they could? And, um, and last week I was just trying to swag some numbers in my head to say, well, it wasn't the financial failure, you know, that people are making it out to be. Um, because, you know, everybody just likes to quote the fact that it cost $100 million to develop it. So it was, you know, the most costly, time-consuming MMO um, ever developed. I suppose. I don't know if you looked at the total cost of um, World of Warcraft with all of its expansions, what that would line up to be. Mm-hmm. But, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was throwing out some really fuzzy math, and I was just, you know... Yeah, you these have are a all whole things. matrix here, just row after row of... It's still a swag, but I could take you through it really quick, just to yeah, kind of... And you guys tell me if I'm off, okay? Because I just... Put, I put this down in, like, ten minutes, but... so. We know Star Wars The Old Republic cost $100 million to develop. Um, gross sales, I calculated it out to, at, you know, I didn't take into account the collector's edition costs oh, yeah. or anything like that. Um, so I just set a flat rate of 50 per item, and they sold $2 million initially. So that's $100 million right there. Boom. Now the, so that's gross sales versus cost to develop, but, you know, I'm not taking into... Into, you know, I'm not 
factoring in, you know, distribution costs at that point. Although they said that they had a 40% digital distribution rate when they, um, that's been kind of the rate that they've been selling it. 60%, you know, traditional brick and mortar distributed, um, you know, cardboard boxed, but, um, and then also, so, so, okay. So with gross sales, boom, you, you're, you cost a hundred million, you got back a hundred million in gross sales that came with the first, uh, free first month. So the second and third months, we know the subscriptions were, um, they sold 2 million, but they said subscriptions were at 1.7 million. So at $15, again, an average, it could have been, you know, lower if they bought multiple months at once, but that would be factored in later anyway. So at $15 times 1.7 million, that's $51 million. So you've already grossed with a, a gross profit of $51 million after three months of it being launched. Is that a failure yet? I don't, I'm not seeing that yet. Even if you take into account the 40% digital, digital distribution and say at a 60% traditional um, rate and you take into account distribution infrastructure, the support costs, and okay, we'll throw in marketing and say that's a 30% um, you know, hit to that. That's still $42 million in, at that 60% rate plus 40 million because the digital distribution doesn't incur any costs on, you know, um, you know, the, the fees for distribution or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So I come up with an estimated profit for the first three months of 33 million, even after all of that, even if it's kind of a worst case point of view. And then they say right now they have well over 500,000 um, subscribers, but they're, you know, most people say it's around 800, 800,000 currently. Yeah. At fifteen dollars yeah. a month, and they've been running at that rate for eight months now. Um, this is beyond the first three months. That that comes out to be a number of um, twelve million dollars. You add that all up, you know, eight months. Uh, I'm sorry, that's twelve million per month, right? So that's eighty-six million dollars, roughly. So my my kind of swag is estimated total profits after one year. I would say is about $119 million and they're calling this an epic failure. I, you know, I don't yeah. get it. I don't see it. I just, I, even if I'm totally wrong and if it's half that or quarter that or 10th that it's still not an epic failure by any means. An epic failure is where you, you put a hundred million dollars into it and you make $5 million. Yeah. And, and at this point they're about to go free to play which we all know is a much better model for, you know, monetizing any kind of a game that's actually up and running. They've already got all of this content that they put into it. You know, it's voice acting through and through. They've got a system that works. The glitches are, you know, minor at this point after all of the, the uh, you know, updates that they've released. And all they really have to do is figure out how to make this model work and how to come up with, you know, extra episodic content or whatever to keep, you know, to entice a player base to spend money on it. And I think they're golden, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I just have, I do, I do definitely get pissed off when people say it's a failure and what's so wrong with it. And why is it so horribly broken? You know, um, I enjoyed playing it. I played it. To, I played one character to max level and had a bunch of vaults. Um, I just, when the secret world came out, I just had to jump ship and try that out. But, um, yeah, that's. I guess that's my point. I don't know. Do you guys have any points or counterpoints to that? I, I like I said, it's just a swag. But 
you know, for my part, I would kind of, I would pretty much agree with that. Um, like, you know, what constitutes that epic failure, really? Uh, you know, the video game industry, what with all the uh, VC investment that goes into it, and when you when you have companies that are public and stuff, and they have to keep generating ungodly amounts of profits just to keep investors happy, um, there's a, a a really great amount of pressure that that happens from that. You know, where you you need to reach a certain multiple of whatever it is that you put into it. To, for it to be considered a success, you know. So these days, like you have to spend, if you spend 100 million to build something, they're going to want to get at least 500 million back from that to have the kind of you know, margins that they're really after. If you don't hit that, then you know everyone screams and cries. <laughs> ah. Yeah, <laughs> but that's always the gamble with an investment. You don't always get what you want. Yeah, and I I think that, you know, I think making a making an MMO these days is a big gamble, which is I think why in a previous story that we just covered, they they bailed on the Warhammer 40k MMO. It is a it is a huge gamble. I'm shocked that the Secret World actually made it to light. Yeah, me too. Since this was covered during our last episode that was recorded last week, and you've spent so much time in the game, Mark, do you feel that of the gameplay mechanics that are present in Old Republic, given the the flaws that are claimed in the game about the game design in this Gama Sutra article, do you feel that how successful do you feel or how well poised do you think Old Republic is to be successful as a free to play game given its current game design? Oh, I think it's wide open for where they could go with it. I think they, I think they're much better poised to be successful with it than Turbine was with Lotro or with Do, and they've been incredibly successful. I think, you know, it's a much more solid game that right now than those guys were when they made the switch, and it has, you know, it's got two things going for it. It's got Bioware and their attention to story. And it's got Star Wars as, as its, you know, setting. And mm-hmm. that Star Wars setting is the coolest of the Star Wars settings. So I think it could be, you know, it's got a great IP, just like um, Turbine has with Lotro. But it's got an IP that's, I think, a little more far-reaching. It definitely reaches farther into a younger audience than Lotro does. And I, th- I, think, I think that they put so much into it, they could really make some you know small adjustments and get a huge gain out of it and i think they also an advantage they have is they have um all the turbine franchises that have been incredibly successful to kind of watch and to model it after you know they're not having to cover really new ground all they have to do is listen to their player base see what the other folks have done and take it in that direction you know so i think they could do it do they have a mac client i don't know I I don't I don't think so, but I don't know. I'll look it up. I'm not sure. All right. Curious. Yeah. I know Turbine yeah. doesn't. DDO and Lotro can't. I can't play those. Oh, I'm Mac. I'm Mac only. <laughs> I wonder why they don't do that. It, it is too bad. I I really wish that. I would it, think you know. that by now that there'd be a a greater shift towards making more games for. That that are supported by Mac just because the market 
has been growing. Yeah. But it feels it also feels like Apple just is putting all of its game resources into stuff that's strictly iPad or iPhone centric. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just twiddling my thumbs waiting for Baldur's Gate and the iPad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh, that would be cool. They are making an iPad version of that remake. It's going to be pretty interesting to see how that turns out. Mm-hmm. Speaking of stuff to come in the future, we are now in the future section of Intergeddon. Future. <laughs> one of uh, one of our previous popular topics to talk about was the Ouya, whose Kickstarter funding has officially officially finished. It's completed. You can no longer donate to it. And the original goal was $950,000. The final tally of donations ended up being $8,596,475 with 63,416 unique donors contributing to that fund. So, yeah. One is me. What? (laughs) One was me. (laughs) Oh, you. Oh, wow. What tier did you get in at? Are you going to be getting your own little OUYA development kit or... No, I just threw some money at them because I thought they were doing an awesome thing. And so far, there's been a few extra positive news stories. Square Enix is having a port of its Final Fantasy III game coming, and Namco Bandai is already in discussions with Ouya about bringing some of its games over to Ouya, which would be really cool. And plus, bonus, as part of the wrap-up of the Kickstarter, the folks behind Ouya revealed that this little system that could, which looks like, gosh, it looks like it's about the size of a baseball. It's really tiny. If it were base, if a baseball were square, but uh, it'll support four controllers, which is kind of nice. That is cool. Yeah. So hopefully some good party games. And I heard that uh, free games are one of the requirements that they're they've got on there. You know, like uh, all the games on the Oya have to be free, free to play. Yeah. So I don't know how they work around that, but maybe there's demos or it's all microtransaction based. It should be very interesting. Apparently it's going to be uh, revealed completely by March 2013. That's the current target date to have the little consoles shipped out. But we'll have to keep following it and see what, what else gets announced for it. Mark, did you donate to the Kickstarter for Ouya? No, I did not. Nope. I've been. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go for it. I've been uh, been donating. Well, not donating, but doing some. Um, I've been thinking about it, like the right Kickstarter project, but I uh, I, I just haven't found one where the price points right. That yeah. probably would have been a really good one. Although you know the there's one reason why it might fail utterly is because it's going to be incredibly easy to hack it to the point of you know, having a kind of a free marketplace for all the, you know, kind of like the is currently available for Android and for hacked um, iPhones. So that'll be interesting, but I think it's really cool. I want, I want to believe. <laughs> the other uh, gamer or at least gamer culture related Kickstarter that I donated to was the one for Penny Arcade. Oh yeah, that was controversial. They got a little bit of flack for that. It was ballsy, I, and I like the stuff that they um, they threw in for the reward levels and stuff. Anyway, too, you know, I just donated enough to get one of those um, e-books of uh, I can't remember the name of it now. It's one of the e-books. Mm-hmm. 
That's nice. So obviously you were a supporter of their initiative to try to remove ads from their website. At least that's what yeah. it was about. Yeah, that was like the original idea. And then they said, hey, if we don't have to bother with that, then we can do all kinds of other stuff too. And like, I guess at this point, they're at the level where, or at least last I looked, um, they were almost at the level where they're going to do this uh, uh, show. It's called Search. And they're going to do, it's basically kind of like a, um, American Idol for web comics. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Our next future story concerns the next Xbox, which we've discussed previously on the show. The actual release window for the system is becoming more and more clear via rumors and then just, oops, I guess you posted this in a job advertisement. <laughs> a new Microsoft job posting has a quote that reads, over the next 18 months, Microsoft will release new versions of all of our most significant products, including Windows, Office, and Xbox, along with the completely new offerings like Microsoft Surface. <laughs> like, oh, okay, so in other words, that means that the new Xbox will be coming out by February 2014 at the latest, because that's 18 months away. And Microsoft, of course, like, oh, oh, well, no, we're always looking for talented people, and we don't have any further comment on this or any other job posting. Oops. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fire Whoops. the HR people. <laughs> Many analysts believe that a new Xbox and potentially a new PlayStation 4 will be out as early as next, not this, but next holiday season, which would make sense. Developers are certainly bitching about not having new hardware to work with. Yeah, that's that's for sure. I don't know. Is the world ready? I think so. Do you think the world would be ready, though, for a single console market? No. I think um, this is based on a GameSpot article um, about how um, Tekken producer, oh boy, Katsuhiro <laughs> Harada. Very good. Um, thank wow. you. <laughs> Um, has sounded off that the industry would look what the industry would look like or could look like if Sony, Microsoft, and Nintendo were to join forces, and uh, he thinks that the potential of for the industry's innovation would be endless if the big three were to unite. Well, I don't see that as likely. I mean, I think in a previous podcast, Noah, you talked about how you know pigs fly when pigs fly is kind of like the motto that um are the the, the credo that I guess Nintendo lives by as far as, you know, making games or allowing their games to be run on other hardware, such as yeah. mm -hmm. iPhones or Androids, that they're proud of what they do with their hardware. So they would not ever do this. Um, Xbox and Sony are kind of like poised right now as arch rivals, and both, both seem to think they have the better way of doing it. So there's, it just doesn't seem like anything that could naturally or unnaturally even occur, even if they were incentivized to somehow, you know, merge or come up with like a platform that they would all build their specifically branded version of, but it would be, you know, built to a standard. I mean, we saw this with Sony trying so hard to destroy the um, HD DVD with the Blu-ray battle. I mean they will fight to the end to have their way and, and have it be the way. And, and of course they were successful with, with Blu-ray. So mm -hmm. don't see it as very likely. And I don't even know that it'd be a huge advantage really. I mean, I guess for the developers, it would be handy to, you know, be able to develop it for one specific platform and sell it to, for all. But uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What do you guys think? 
I like the utopian concept of having a single console. It would definitely be a lot easier on the marketplace. Consumers could be like, all right, I don't have to save up or choose between one platform or another. I can get a single platform, and I don't have to say, well, I can't play this game because it's only available on this platform, and I own the other one instead. It's it's a really nice idea, and (laughs) I can see people feeling that maybe we're heading towards that if everything becomes purely digital. What if OnLive just becomes the dominant way to play games? Then you don't really need a an Xbox or a PlayStation or a Nintendo console. You just use OnLive's controller, and you're playing the same games that would have been ported to all of those different machines. So the concept is out there, but the idea of these bitter rivals joining hands, I think there are companies that have to be in a rapid free fall towards bankruptcy for them to do something that desperate. And for me, I would think, like, um, you know, if if all things were ideal, that would be nice. Um, but also, you know, kind of thinking, like, when have monopolies ever been really beneficial to users, though, too? Like, at first, maybe it would be nice to, to be able to save your money and all that kind of stuff. But without a certain degree of competition, right. what's the incentive to improve the hardware over time and stuff? Yeah. Where's the innovation, really? Mm-hmm. All that the, all that those three people joining together would mean would be that there'd be somebody else trying to make a rival to it. Yeah, yeah. Somebody somebody else would be the upstart, and then the whole yeah. fragmentation thing would reoccur. Except, you know, whoever it was that succeeded in overwhelming the big three's conglomerate of death would you know would be like they'd be the new one. <laughs> so mm-hmm. <laughs> the king is it's dead a really good point. Yeah, exactly. So I was just funny. I was chuckling when you were talking, Noah, because you were when you were saying it would be really nice. And this, and I was kind of like, yeah, it'd be really nice. Like, like if psychopaths pet kitties once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> VP of global good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how old? How old is Warcraft three? When did that come out? Was that oh, like two thousand three? I want to say three or oh two. That's Let's my go favorite. to Wikipedia. Let us so harness of all knowledge. Two thousand two. Okay, yeah. so the graphics in that game ten years ago, compared to what we can get today, hugely forward. Do you feel that in another ten years? That they will be that video game graphics will be indistinguishable from reality. Well, if they choose to be, I believe that you know some will some will certainly go towards photorealistic um, you know graphics. I mean, there are some racing games where when you see the commercial, it's yeah. like you're is like, it, uh, is it live? Video? Yeah, I'm like, is that a new need for? Is that some kind of you know? movie with Vin Diesel or what is that? And then you're like, Oh, that's, that's a video game. Holy crap. So I think if they, by, by now, I mean, they're going to have real time ray tracing and stuff like that, you know, at a frame rate that's beyond what we can actually discern. Um, I totally believe that in 10 years we'll, we'll be there. Um, but I think, you know, fortunately some developers will choose not to do that and they will go with something more cartoonish or exaggerated or whatever, you know, for style points, but I think it'll definitely be possible. Like like anime. I, know, I don't even... Go ahead. Sorry, like anime versus uh, Pixar. Yeah, exactly. 
I think it's definitely possible. I think you might even be, you know, in well under 10 years at the rate we're going. I mean, some of the demos I've seen are just nothing short of, you know, mind-boggling. So, and let alone how good the um, CGI is in a lot of movies. Now, that's not done in real time. It's done with render farms. But it seems like every iteration of Moore's Law, it it takes, you know, it, it goes from being a rendering farm to achieve a certain look to a, a really powerful GPU that you can buy with, <laughs> you know, $500 or less. So I definitely believe what he's saying is true. When I read that story, this the person in question that we're talking about is Kim Library, who is an ILM, Industrial Light and Magic Visual Effects Supervisor, and the, which is one of the many groups at LucasArts that's working on Star Wars 1313. And they're really proud of that game because that's essentially a next-gen console game. And I was wondering if he came up with the 10-year number just from the concept of historically most console generations have only been five years in oh, right. aside from the current one. So if potentially we're two console generations or at least that many years away from a, a PC that can render stuff that well, I can see that. Yeah, I can too. I mean... I was wondering, though, it's like, what will Pixar movies look like then? It's like, oh, wow. <laughs> will it be stylized photorealism? It'd be, I can't fathom what, what direction they'll go. They'll go back to a hand-drawn, cel-shaded animation. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, I, I don't know, have either of you seen Brave? Oh, I love Brave, yeah. Did you see the little, the little teaser movie that happens before it? Uh, I saw. I can't remember. I'm sure if you tell me which one it was, I'll it'll jog my memory. I think uh, it was like a, a black and white news, like a newspaper boy. He, a boy who works newspaper. He falls for a girl, and the thing that's notable about it from a stylistic perspective is that it's all 3D rendered, but the way that it's rendered is it, it's made to look like it's hand drawn. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was pretty cool looking. Yeah, I did, I did see that. So maybe, maybe actually, what you're saying, Mark, is. is pretty true maybe we'll see that strange combination i remember that uh what was it tangled the rapunzel movie that disney made that was supposed to be it was supposed to look like a watercolor painting came to come to life but to me it still looked like just a regular computer animated movie i didn't see that aspect but i'm i'm seeing a combination of technologies in a lot of cartoons for kids these days um that are you know the the really the latest and greatest ones like like my son has a thing for Spider-Man and I'll be watching one of the newer Spider-Man episodes and everything looks like a cartoon like a really well done cartoon but a cartoon nonetheless and then he'll go through some kind of city swinging sequence where all of a sudden you realize that things are being done in 3D even though the cartoon looks 2D but you know what I mean like the way that the perspective is shifting and the horizon yeah. is lining up there's no way that that's being done by hand and it's it's pretty it's kind of almost disconcerting at first because you you start to see it happening and you you know you've played too many video games but i think you know they'll they'll be more seamless with that but i definitely think that that's where it's going i mean most of the cartoons that um we're watching now i mean they're all done with like 2d you know vector-based art programs that have, you know, 3D hooks in them that, you know, can can do all that stuff as well, like Phineas and Ferb and all that stuff. It's um, the hand-drawn thing seems to have gone way a long time ago, 
But, you know, depending on where they go with the art direction, it, it may be weird like that paper boy kind of short that we saw. Yeah, I think that'd be really cool. It's a nice way to merge everything together and yeah. get something that's classic and modern at the same time. It'd be quite an achievement. Totally. Also, 10 years from now, do you think that, could you possibly imagine yourself working on a computer that uses Linux and Steam as the backbone of the OS and you're running Steam word processing <laughs> and Steam PowerPoint? Yeah, you know, I mean, for digital distribution, I, I, uh, I, in that, the possibility of um, Valve or Steam distributing applications for companies I mean, they've proven they've got it down to a science. I don't see why not. And as a user, I don't really care if it was installed by a you know a CD or or if it was downloaded from Microsoft. But at least if it comes from somebody like the Steam service, you know that it's always going to be updated seamlessly, and um, you know you will be able to look for add-ons for it or something with the same interface you're used to. And with all the stuff that's cloud-based anymore anyway, like Google Docs and what that brings to the table, and a lot of you know email systems are starting to go exclusively cloud-based, it seems pretty pretty easy to believe. I guess the question is, will every software developer out there that's not a game developer, um, you know, because I don't, I don't see like a huge indie application market really. I mean, I know there's some there's some applications, but it's not quite like the indie game market. I just don't know if like Adobe, for instance, would be like cool with using Steam for distribution versus trying to come up with their own horribly broken distribution model. <laughs> I only say that because every time Adobe up, upgrades itself, I, I, you know, like Acrobat or something, it's like a study and patience. And then you never know if it's actually going to work or not. Mm -hmm. So, um, let alone like CSS five or something like that, where you pretty much have to pitch a temp tent and camp out for the night. <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I know the productivity software stuff like Photoshop, stuff like office windows, it's frequently pirated just because the price of it is pretty high. And I wonder what steam implementation would have, what type of impact it would have on the pirating of that software and the pricing of that software, would it go up or would it maintain currently what it is or would people gravitate even more towards free stuff like Google Docs? Could you imagine? License? Oh, sorry. I was, just, I was just extending your logic and, and, well, not really. I think you were already there. I'm just, I'm just catching on to your logic. Um, <laughs> but like the whole, you know, when like they do those crazy summer sales for games on Steam if like if like Adobe did that and and took you know like Photoshop down to where you could get it for fifteen dollars for a month oh or something gosh. like that, could you imagine that like what that could do, or or you know you could get like not that this would ever happen, but if you could get Microsoft like Office for thirty bucks or something like that, so I mean it would be awesome. And as we know from the math, from what the the game developers are publishing up for us to to see they come out of it uh, ahead very yeah. i mean they come out way ahead especially the indie guys but um man i would love to see that happen that That'd would be, be really sweet. sweet yeah and at least with office you know they already use a sliding scale for pricing if you're in different right. parts of the world it costs different pricing 
That's a good point, yeah. Man, that'd be cool. In the world of tomorrow, that might be... No kidding. I, I would be <laughs> ecstatic about that. Shoot, I'd be buying all sorts of productivity software that I probably wouldn't even want to use, but I'd, I, or I wouldn't end up using, much like the many games that I've purchased through Steam sales. would be like, I can't resist it. This is going to be awesome. I'm so prepared for everything. Well, yeah, and then, like, once they got you hooked in with a good summer sale like that, you'd have it, and then they could have, like, the upgrade price be nice and low or exactly. a cross-product cross, uh, upgrade or something like that. It'd be, yeah. could be devastating to the old pocketbook. But you'd, yep. be, you'd have a bunch more legal users. Hell yeah, yeah. Pirated users. I mean, who doesn't know someone... Not to name any names, he's pirated, you know, Microsoft <laughs> Office or the OSs that are out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. It's common, and it it happens for a reason. It's just yeah. for some people, it's just really cost prohibitive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For our last future story, this is something I wasn't expecting, but maybe I should have just like figured. Well, of course, this is going to happen. Amazon launched its own game studio, or game ah. studios. What part of the world, digital world, do they not want to own? It was kind of crazy. I, I really didn't know what to expect, but it, it makes sense because they're really pushing Kindle Fire hard and uh, pushing their own marketplace and something that doesn't really exist in their marketplace or that their marketplace isn't known for are, are games. And now they're like, hey, check it out. We're going to make our own games. And their first one is basically a, a moving object, not a hidden object. It's a moving object game that uh, tying into Amazon's heritage has, it has scenes from old classic children's books and you have to look for things that are moving and, and catch them while they're moving and identify them and stuff like that. It's the first fire across the bow. Do you think, what type of legs do you think Amazon has with this game studio saying, do you think it's ever going to be something big or is it just going to be niche stuff like this little casual stuff? I mean, I can't, I can't, imagine that they would really go in that direction when they have all the other directions <laughs> to to you know try to just dominate and market share um it'd be really weird if they if it actually did have legs and took off i it just seems so counter to what they do you know they resell things and they provide services um you know some good, some not so good. But I can't imagine them developing games for some reason or applications. I don't know. And Dan, you and Dinar have a Kindle Fire, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I love it a lot, really. Um, you know, Amazon, at least in other marketplaces too, you know, they are moving into content production. Like they just bought a book publisher can't remember which one it is, but it's one of the ones that's been around for a really long time. And they were all, um, you know, the, the publishing world was like, whoa, you know, because Amazon's moving into this um, pretty aggressively. They, they bought some publisher that has like 90 years worth of uh, backlog content and stuff. So they own that content now. Wow. And it's a publisher that is continuing to publish stuff, too. So they own this content and now they're creating more content. They're really moving into that content creation bit. And I suppose they see this as like another wing of that becoming a content creator as well as a reseller and so on and so forth. You know, they're going to, you know, they're making the empire. (laughs) It's crazy too, because I was reading another article today, completely unrelated to gaming about 
um, you know, what would the impact be of a hurricane to, there's so many data centers on the East coast right now, um, you know, like mm. around the North Carolina area and stuff. Um, and what would the impact of a hurricane be if it came through at the perfect trajectory and took out those data centers, you know, Facebook, Amazon, there's a whole bunch of Google, whole bunch of people have stuff there. And one estimation was that Amazon Web Services now accounts for 1% of the content of the Internet. Wow. Which I know it sounds yeah. like, well, it's just 1%, but that's a lot, you know, because they provide up storage and virtual machines and cloud-based stuff. So 1% of the Internet could be, you know, impacted by a hurricane to the coast or if something, you know, horrific were to happen to Amazon, um, that's just crazy to think about. And I'm sure, you know, it's their job to make it grow to more than 1%, you know, as soon as we get. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's crazy to think how this little bookseller has managed to become this just force. I mean, I've been buying all kinds of stuff lately through Amazon just because, um, you know, I get it when I order it and it's got a good return policy. It's just, it's weird how suddenly I'm doing that. And, you know, I, I have a Kindle, my wife has a Kindle. I use the Kindle app on my um, iPhone all the time to read books. I don't use anything else. It's like they're they're pretty important to my day to day, um, you know, way of life. Just at this point, let alone if they start to become responsible for game development and you know um, publish you know they own content from books and it's crazy to think about where they're headed. Yeah, maybe they'll be the first corporate city state and become an evil empire. <laughs> Well, I'll live in Amazonia. <laughs> like of course, that. that means we'll live with some Amazons, so that might be cool. We'll see. <laughs> Corporations are people. <laughs> so I guess it'll be like Big Brother. Uh, yeah. Big Sister. In the shape of an Amazon. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like it. Listeners, that wraps up our intro again, and we covered a lot of stuff. A little bit longer of an intergetting, but hopefully you found it as interesting as we did. Let us know what you think about any of the stories. Send it, uh, your thoughts into mail. Email. At jellymaster.com. It was action-packed, fun-filled, and fact-filled, and even There was drama. There was anger. There was crying. There were tears there of joy, spreadsheet. tears of sorrow. There was a spreadsheet verbally described. Not, yeah, not such a good idea, probably, um, <laughs> in retrospect. In hindsight... <laughs> That could have been handled better, but, you know, we're learning. <laughs> Maybe by episode 211, <laughs> we'll have this down to a science. <laughs> <laughs> Up next, we're going to get into what we're playing. So, Noah, what are you playing? I wish that I had something novel or exciting to tell our listeners, but much as I have been the last few weeks, I am still playing Mass Effect 3, which I totally love, and Rhythm Thief. I'm just dragging the hell out of Mass Effect 3. I think I've now put in as many hours into that game as I put into the first two, and I actually beat the first two. Oh, nice. Amount of hours. It's just, I really, really like it a lot, and knowing that it's the end of the trilogy, I don't care what the ending's going to be. I'm just enjoying the experience and not knowing what the next Mass Effect game is going to be like. It may not be like any of the previous ones. It may be 
purely action based or whatever horde mode horde <laughs> mode space whores <laughs> whores in space I like uh, it <laughs> and I'm also playing Rhythm Thief which comes from Sega who also made Space Channel 5 and Samba de Amigo many years ago what I well, the reason I bring that up is there's actually little there's a montages or there's rhythm games that are actually homages that's the word i'm looking for to those previous games and it continues to be really great and i'm playing it because i'm reviewing it for nintendo joe and i also got dragon quest 9 because it was on sale for like 10 bucks at best buy best buy occasionally will have these really awesome this game's five bucks this game's 10 bucks wow yeah Just every that's once crazy. in a while like every three or four weeks they'll do one of those like heck yeah so i got this huge epic <laughs> rpg it's no mass effect but hey we'll see what happens what you gonna do? Oh, that's cool. That's all I got, though. I don't know why, but I took some pleasure in misspelling all of your what we're playing section. <laughs> <laughs> you like me as a horrific speller and typer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I like portraying you that way. It's just so funny to me <laughs> because it's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't know why it makes you laugh. So yeah, the show notes for Noah's thing now are ter- terribly misspelled. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm looking at it now. I Phonetically, it works. Yeah. What do you oh, mean? I spelled it right. I I'm especially like... proud of mass affect. And uh, <laughs> I like rhythm thief. <laughs> thief with two e's. <laughs> I don't know why, but that was just very, like, it was very therapeutic for me. <laughs> anyway, um, what have you been playing, Dan? Oh, wow. Um, well, not a whole lot, not as much as I would certainly want, but uh, there is one game that I had gotten back to. Um, kind of like this one article I saw recently about some dude that had been playing Civ, what, 2 for 10 years? Oh, yeah, the longest-running Civ game ever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've got a uh, Rome Total War uh, game that I've had going for a really, really long time. Uh, well, really long time for me, which is like, I don't know. I guess the game is about a year and a half old. Oh, wow. Um, long time. Yeah. Well, I also don't play it very often, so it's like, you know, I go for a spurt, and in like three days and a month I'll play it straight, and then I won't touch it for another month or something. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, I plan that a little bit kind of revisionist history where I play the Gauls and I actually beat the Romans. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Way to go. Yeah. French people. <laughs> that's it for me. Mark? Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> well, so I, I have sadly only been playing one game right now. I've been using my iPhone for uh, reading books and not playing any kind of uh, games. Um, although I did play a bunch of Where's My Parry in previous weeks. Um, and then in, uh, on my computer, I've almost, I've pretty much exclusively been playing The Secret World. And um, I had, I guess it was a couple days ago, I subjected Noah and Jason and Bob and Eric and eventually Tear, when I remembered to forward it to her, to like uh, <laughs> The Secret World. <laughs> Sorry, Noah's misspelling all of my notes now and in even better ways. <laughs> no, that's not me. Oh, Dan. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> Thank really you, Dan. Um, so, 
Yeah, I've been playing The Secret World, and I just had been playing it, and I was like, why am I still playing this? Like, what is the allure here? What What is it that I'm digging? And I wasn't really sure, and then I, I got one of the investigation missions that um, I, I wasn't sure if they were all that was, they were cracked up to be or not, but I realized they really are fun, and they're totally different from an MMO. Well, like, because, they also have the augmented reality aspect to it. So yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the coolest part. You bring up a web browser and, and you Google stuff. Like, one example that I didn't mention was I was playing it, and there's this there's a faction in there called the Arachai or something like that, and I pro- probably just mangled their name. But anyway, <laughs> they, um, they're they like this faction that's not one of the three main ones, but they're they're important to the game. Well, there's this kid, and he he's like, I think he tells you that, hey, there's these black vans over here, and I'm not sure what's going on. And uh, and so you go check it out, and you find this black van, like, out of the X-Files. And there's these two corpses near it, and they're wearing the, the the clothing of this faction. And it's a man and a woman. And then you find, like, a laptop in the back of the um, van, and you're trying to figure out what the password is. And you find a hint to it um, that says something about a wife. Well, you find you do some googling and you find out that the this woman well, you know the guy and the woman are not husband and wife because of the last names, or at least you could figure. But you find when you start googling around, you find out that this guy has written an article, and you find out through that article what his wife's name is, and then that turns out to be the password to get into the laptop. And then there's all wow. this other investigation you do. There's there's one where I was like following these manhole covers that have the Illuminati symbol. And I followed them all around town because they eventually pointed to the cellar. And then, but the cellar had a combination lock, and there was other clues you had to figure out to get to that. Um, it's just, it's really well done. Those those quests come at a good pace. So there's quite a few of them, but they're not, it's not like, you know, 50% of those and 50% typical action quests. They're, there's, you know, they're spaced in there to where it's a breath of fresh air, you know, but not annoying. Um, and a lot of people are complaining that they're too hard, which I say to those people, oh, well, there's always, sake. there's always walkthroughs, <laughs> you know, I always want to say honey after that, like, okay, honey, you can, <laughs> you can use this thing called the internet and the internet will tell you how to get through any gaming, you know, situation you run into in your entire life. Cause that's what it does. Cause people can't shut up about stuff like this, but you know, it it really does make it kind of unique in that respect. It also is the only other MMO I've ever played with full voice acting. Um, although the protagonist, which is you, is silent, but everybody else does voice acting, and it's you know it's an adult, uh, like an A. Uh, what is it? I think it's an AO rated game. Like it's mature, yeah. Sure, it's a mature game. So there's profanity and stuff, and um, <clears throat> so anyways, unlike Old Republic, Old Republic probably didn't have that, did it? In no voice acting. No, nothing like this. You know, I mean, there's this one girl who's like, you know, comes across as like a total slut. And then you find out she's a double agent and stuff. And actually, there is a reason why she's doing what she's doing. And it's horror just, mode. Yeah, she's like, it totally like, you're like, oh, you're a skank. And then you're like, oh, you're a lot smarter than the people you're fooling. But, um, you know, there's there's just a general cohesiveness to all the quests and to the, the first zone that I, I'm still in the first zone, although I finished the dungeon for it last night, which was really cool, too. The dungeon was awesome because 
you, you, you know, it has a cut scene, it has cut scenes liberally applied and you, you go to this place where there's this oil tanker or uh, not an oil tanker, but like a uh, freight uh, freighter that has um, been overturned, a, you know, a, a boat, a huge one, you know, the kind that has the little boxes on it that eventually get moved to railroad cars mm-hmm. and distributed and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. it's one of those and it's on its side. And you go and you're you're fighting these um, different creatures that you've kind of become familiar with. And then you fight finally this giant slug monster thing that's just gigantic. And when you finally defeat it, and it's kind of a, it's not the trickiest encounter ever, but it's a little harder than the others. It slowly sinks into the ocean. It's almost creepy how it does it. Like you're like, did I really kill it or is it just taking a break? And then you see your extraction helicopter pops up. And the whole time it's like a war game because it shows you, like, insertion point, the path you should take, what your objectives are. So then you see the helicopter and you're like, oh, good. Well, that that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it would be. And it's a cutscene, and you're on the helicopter and something starts to happen. And you see this giant Cthulhu-esque flying thing with, like, the tentacled mouth thing and these evil, evil eyes flying next to your helicopter and it's humongous and then it, it swats you out of the sky and then it nice. pans back and you're in you're back by that tanker and um you've been grounded your helicopter's destroyed the pilots are dead and it's you you and your party are all injured but you know you rapidly recover because you're kind of superhuman and you have to battle this tentacle monster and the encounter is really cool because what you ha- it, it goes into this mode where it starts to open these int- dimensional gates and while it's doing that, it can almost insta-kill you with this, like, eye beam thing. So everything turns kind of blackish-blue, like the entire uh, environment just suddenly gets really creepy. And you're trying to hide behind these rocks. And if you, and you see its glowing eyes, you're trying to hide behind the rocks so its glowing eyes don't see you, because once it sees you, it can attack you. And so if you can imagine five people frantically hiding behind these rocks while this giant winged Cthulhu thing is creeping around trying to get you and it's spawning these little things. So you all have to kind of stay behind the same rock because the little, the little minions it spawns will overwhelm you. And that goes on for seemingly forever until finally it switches out of that mode. Then you can attack it some more. So it's an encounter like that where it's, you know, it's really, you're just on the edge of your seat to try to survive. Well, we died the first time and had to do it over um, which made us, I think, appreciate it even more by the time we, we finally got it on the second one. But it was just like such a well-done encounter. Um, you know, it was as good as any WoW encounter I've ever played um, that I was just really, I, I was just like, wow, they're just doing so many things right with this game. Um, you know, it just reinforced my reason of, uh, my, my thought of, well, why am I playing it? Well, because it's just fun and it's working for me. So that's that. Sorry, rambled. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're liking it just as much as Eric. Eric has so many positive things to say about the game. He does, you know, and and I see him in the game all the time and the way it's it's kind of it's kind of done like um we're in different worlds, but you can cross over anytime you want and hang out with each other and uh you know, it's kind of like one giant server kind of like Eve Online, so that's always a possibility. Um so I've you know, I've run into him a few times even though we're on different factions and uh, he's shown me his stuff and helped me out with stuff and offered to help me run through that, um, that particular dungeon too later on. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it continues to really impress me. It's kind of like my new standard to how you should do an MMO. So, wow. I I did not expect that you would get 
to liking the game this much. That's great. I I really am liking it a lot, so much that now I'm finding I'm reading about it when I'm at work once in a while, only during a sanctioned break, I might add, in case my boss... <laughs> and uh, and um, then, yeah, when I get home, I'm like, man, I want to... I think about it a lot. I'm like, I really want to play that game. I haven't had that feeling towards any game for a long time where, you know, it's not just a time filler, but it's actually a, hey, I want to play this more and see where it goes. And I'm trying to do my best to not read too much about it. I have read about some of the future zones that I'm going to be, or more like, you know, settings, because they're a, they're not really zones. They're more like a really cohesive kind of setting, like a town or an area in the desert or Transylvania is on the list for later. I mean, there's some pretty crazy stuff. Pharaoh's tombs and things like that. So digging it quite a bit. And I hope you try it out, Noah, because I think you'll I don't, I don't, I'm not trying to convert anyone to play it, but I'm, I am thinking you might enjoy it a little bit. It does sound really cool, and as I've said before, I love the setting and the premise, the factions, and I I'm, I I want to see Funcom do well. You I know? do too, because they take some they take they take a different approach. You know, this is kind of their own IP versus the Conan one, but you know they're leaning heavily on HP Lovecraft and another you know horror type settings. But I Which you don't see get a lot of in video games. No. And you know what it is, Noah? One of the qualities that I've, I've finally dawned on me, it feels like some of the best parts of City of Heroes. Nice. Which, you know... Where it all began for us. Where it all began for us. I mean, we, we put a lot of time into that game, and mm-hmm. uh, this has that feeling in, in, in a good way. You know, it's an evolved version, but there's definitely some of the some of the good points are there. So, anyway, I took that way too far, so... Not at all. You gave our listeners something to listen to. I didn't have anything, so I was happy to hear it. That's pretty cool stuff. <laughs> and thank you by spelling secret. <laughs> I think if you spelled it S-E-E-K-R-A-T, world, uh, or secret, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I like yeah, reading, we... reading books spelled B-U-K-S. That's <laughs> reading R-E-D. I, I like it. It's good. <laughs> Yeah, listeners, we got even with Mark's unwarranted editing of the Google Docs. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. <laughs> hey, you're welcome. <laughs> and now we're going to get into general geekery. We'll be back in one moment. Now we're going to get into general geekery, our potpourri, pop luck, whatever you'd like to call it, area of the podcast where we talk about stuff not directly related to video games, but other things that we hope you find interesting. First up, Mark, you and Bob have been leading the charge in planning our Dragon Con to make sure that it is as efficient and as epic as possible. Yeah, I know. I got some news from Bob about Dragon Con. So, you know, we have the printed, um, the, the little printed Dragon Con brochure they sent out, and then there's the website. But apparently the most up-to-date um, way to get information for DragonCon and all the associated events is to actually download the iPhone and Android apps for it. Hmm. He says he's finding stuff in those apps that are not available anywhere else, especially the times of all the um, uh, like track events um, and locations and just all kinds of good information there. So. Yeah, a friend of mine who's been before, she said that was the only way to do it, is just download the app. That's the only way to keep on top of everything. Yeah, and it's really sad that they don't do a better job. I mean, we're we're almost halfway through August, and 
you know, it's at the end of the month and it's still not on the website, which I I have horrible um I have a horrible access internet access to my phone at work um and uh occasionally at home. So I mean I would like to just use a website to I just I feel more comfortable researching stuff like this with the web in yeah. general. Yeah. And I would like that to be the central source, not the damn app, you know. If you can yeah. put it in the app, how is it you can't put that same amount of information on the web in some format? I just don't understand it. But um Anyway, yeah, we've been like you see the spreadsheet has evolved a bit. We've been we've been working on that. We've been talking about adding, um, you know, for things that we're we're kind of having trouble deciding on. We're thinking of adding like more tabs to our spreadsheet for the events, so you know we can have one or two things we're considering doing in a time slot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there's the events are definitely starting to line up. There's a lot of interesting stuff to do. Um, I'm getting starting to get pretty excited about it. Yeah, I, I'm really excited to see the actors from Lord of the Rings, people from Battlestar Galactica. There's just so many options and, and choices, and 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 Star Trek's tracks and Star Wars's tracks. Those aren't even defined yet, and those are yeah. some stuff that I'm kind of holding out for. Yeah, those are nuts. Uh, yeah, so we're gonna have a really interesting adventure i can't wait to see what type of stories we'll bring back from it yeah i um you know i've been uh i noticed that scott hasn't put anything in except for, for i think he's going to the wrestling event that you're going to but um i decided to taunt him into hopefully doing something <laughs> by clearly defining that as we fly out um back to denver on sunday he's going to kick off a uh, sex an asian sex tour through malaysia indochina thailand if monsoon <laughs> conditions allow or begin work on the world's largest rubber band ball so we'll, we'll they don't have to be mutually exclusive they don't because there's a lot of downtime on a sex tour i, I understand so and who knows <laughs> how you could use a rubber band ball during this right tour. In, in the initial state well yeah anyway um so <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that's Love an incentive for him to get in there and update the calendar, I think. But, uh... <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> that's all I have for general geekery. All right. For for my general geekery, earlier you mentioned using your phone for your Kindle stuff and my Anger about the pricing of ebooks on Kindle aside, that is something that I really love. That because I'm still reading, I, I regularly read every night before I go to sleep. That's how I decompress my mind and get it ready for sleep time. But sometimes when I have to go to lunch or run errands or something, it's so cool to just pull out my phone and say, "All right, I want to continue reading that book that I didn't actually have to physically bring with me, but it synced up with my Kindle at home and it's here. It's on my phone, and it's just oh." I love modern technology sometimes, and now that I've finally, in my continued journey of late adoption, gotten into that, it's really cool. I can yeah, it was it was 2012 before Noah got a smartphone. People, that's so right. We're we're thinking sometime in 2015. I don't know. I'll have an internet connection at home. Yeah, well, yeah. I was gonna say you'll you'll finally you'll finally give up on that do-it-yourself Gutenberg's press that you were working on, so you could copy your books, and uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Hope hope for the best. Hope for the best. 
Yeah, the, the 2400 baud modem can finally get retired. <laughs> yeah. He's finally going to quit using AOL to surf the internet. <laughs> I at last don't need the training wheels provided by AOL. I'm will, ready to venture off into the world and be my own man for once. <laughs> my my exhaustive library of AOL CDs. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he will he will silently mourn for the lack of new DVD or CD coasters that he will no longer have. <laughs> Remember when, they sent, remember when they sent out floppies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Those we had, you could actually keep and use. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. I know. You, I wonder if they, I wonder if by now, I don't know if AOL still exists. I, I really don't. I know there's the messenger. But, like, do they do, like, flash drives now or something? Like, that's know. everything you need. And a virus to boot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Like a Chinese-made uh, digital frame. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah. no one will ever mind this. Exactly. For for my general geekery, what I wanted to touch on was something that I kept building up to, and I was able to talk about last week, but since we weren't able to put that episode out, I'm going to talk about it this week, and that was my full weekend of Dungeons & Dragons, where I had, I think, what was it, Dan, like our fifth or sixth, sixth uh, session? It was so, the fifth. Yeah, so... Uh, of that campaign, and yet again, I was lucky enough to play the the only neutral character in our party, the thief, <laughs> because that girl didn't show up, <laughs> and I I was a little bit more docile with her. I I didn't throw. I did have her jump into a drinking competition with the dwarf, and I had her tease the our our own dwarven party member who was very subdued and mellow, and. So I was able to like, hey, be a smartass with the thief because she's not noble and good like my character. She can be a total bitch. <laughs> so <laughs> she did. And I, I think my favorite moment was when I told our dwarven player, I'm like, I didn't say that. Just keep in mind that was not me. That was the thief talking. <laughs> so don't get don't get upset. And he told me that that was convenient for me to use that uh, excuse. <laughs> Apparently, I get to do again because yet again she's not showing up. Yeah. So. <laughs> Man. That is just so sad. Yeah. yeah. She's just bad at time management, I think. <laughs> I think you should kill the character off. We've talked, a... I've talked about that it was, she's, she needs a redemptive moment in her character arc where everybody hates her right now and they're pissed at her and then she's going to redeem herself by sacrificing. Yeah. <laughs> but every she's time she does team. that, Daenerys says, don't kill her. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I think you should. I think it's for the best. It's a lesson, if you will. <laughs> like in that other game, yeah. The guys didn't show up, and, the, and their characters got turned into statues, which got shattered. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, that yeah but Chris, did I forgot about that. That's good memory, Dan. Yeah, there, was, <laughs> there were two people who kept saying, like, yeah, we want to play with you, we want to play with you. Made characters, and they showed up for, like, the first session, and they didn't show up for, like, four in a row. And... Chris told us, he's like, oh, I'm, I, I, you're going to finally find them. You're going to find them. And we got yeah. this alternate dimension of, of a witch's house, and there were statues of them. And then we said something to the witch, and she got really pissed off, and she knocked the statues over, completely shattering them. So there was no way on earth that those characters could ever come back. They were shattered into a million pieces. I like that. Yeah. It's it seems fitting. <laughs> so maybe something like that. I don't know. We'll, I'm sure that Dan 
we'll have some good something good planned up, which we'll talk about a little bit more during the roundtable discussion. I also wanted to bring up that I got to finally play my first World of Darkness game, which was not Vampire or Werewolf, but it was Changeling the Lost, which is the dark fairy RPG system made from made by World of Darkness. The original one was uh, Changeling the Dreaming, I guess, and it was really lighthearted and friendly, and people were like, this is nothing like Vampire and Werewolf, where there's all this violence and darkness and evilness. And so World of Darkness is like, all right, fine, we'll make Changeling the Lost, where the fairies are totally psychotic and evil, and they kidnap humans, and they torture you, and then you get set free from their realm, totally deformed and replaced by a doppelganger. So nobody has even missed you while you've been totally run through the ringer. Wow. The game system for World of Darkness, now, I think, have both of you guys played a World of Darkness game before? I haven't. I have not. So the thing that really threw me off, Mark, was that I came with all my little dice because I was like, woo, I'm prepared because I play D&D all the time. And they're like, oh, we only use 10-sided dice. I'm like, what? And it's oh, not wow. just one 10-sided dice. You have like five or six 10-sided dice because you have little points that you allocate to all your different skills. And then you roll all of the 10-sided dice. And that's like however many are over eight are considered successes. And it's just like, what? And so just getting my head around this totally different system, I mean, it's so alien to me because it didn't start out like are you going to be a wizard or are you going to be a knight are you going to be neutral or are you going to be good or just those classic archetypes and we're like well who were you before the fae decided to kidnap you and what was your career and why would the fae want to kidnap you and what are your traits going to be and how much are you into subterfuge versus persuasion versus computers versus politics versus like whoa weird yeah it took me like about two and a half hours to, to pick my character. And I felt bad because I was holding everybody up. They were very understanding. Uh, and the, and this storyteller is, he's really big on the story. And so he would just, he'd be telling us about stuff and he'd be talking and I'd just be sitting there listening. And then he'd stop and I'd be like, what's he going to say next? And they'd like, <laughs> look, he's like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I don't know. I was just listening to you tell the story. Like, <laughs> the story time, like, and the thing is, is every character in the changeling, they have a, a clarity or it's like an insanity meter. It's like a level of one to 10 and you start out at seven unless you want to go a little bit more insane, which is lower, I think, on that. And uh, by having a lower level, that allows you to actually be able to cast spells and stuff, things that you absorb while you're in the fairy realm of being tortured and forced to do awful things. The thing is, there are certain actions that you can take that will lower your sanity meter. And the DM told us, he's like, well, if you get to a sanity meter of two, you're completely insane and you will be taken out of the game. Wow. Good Lord. If you kill a Fae, the people that had kidnapped us and tortured us and made us horrible, or if you kill a human, you automatically lose a sanity point. And it's really hard. to. It's not like sanity points just refresh or something. You have to spend a lot of time trying to regain just one especially only out of 10. And if you go all the way up to 10, of course you lose your powers. And so it's like, what are we going to be doing? Cause I'm so used to my very brief experience with D and D. It's like, we go into dungeons and we kill things and we kill the monsters and we take the treasures. And then we like do some goofy stuff in the taverns and then something else happens and we go kill stuff. And so I'm just like, kill, kill, kill. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing this game. We can't kill these people that tortured us or else we go yeah. and get taken out. Of the like, ah! So, uh, it's really interesting, but what I will say that was so cool, having a full weekend of Dungeons & Dragons, even as an adult, is still totally awesome. I loved it, and something that I felt that both of my games had in common, both 
Dan, your game, and then the change the game that it went to is that they were very cinematic. Getting back to what hmm. we were talking about, the Paizo guy making a movie based off of one of his campaigns, it's just like I could really visualize things. It's like I was there, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's like I'm in this cool movie that I can impact where things go. Uh, but that's just something that I, I really like about this the D and D stuff is video games are really fun to play because they can present you with incredible art and worlds and character designs and creatures and stories that maybe you'll never, you never would have thought of on your own. Yeah, uh, that's true. Where there's something, there's more of a personal investment in these D and D games and it's how you visualize things or with Dan, Dan, you like to use uh, the tiles, I guess is what they're called. Mm-hmm. Where when we go into like, like a, uh, kind of interaction area or particularly for battles there's like a grid and they're like these really pretty painted and illustrated map tiles that have grids on them and so we've had stuff for caves and we've had stuff for fields and buildings stuff like that and just having that little bit of help really helps me visualize and put myself in the scene right on and i, I really like that whereas with the changing one it's all strictly in our heads but also that's cool if you if you're given enough detail it's so cool to just imagine what these people look like, especially in the change I'm running around with a dude that's like a badger. <laughs> He's yeah. a anthropomorphic badger. And then there's like this crazy goth girl who's five years old, but she's really 25 years old because she was kidnapped in the eighties or something like that. And I don't know. It's, it's just, and then I just randomly decided, I'm like, well, I was stuck in a plant garden and I was made into a plant. So I'm like, Oh, I'll just have leaves all over myself. Like, I didn't know that, off the cuff, that meant that my character will permanently have leaves all over. <laughs> I'm like, crap. <laughs> so it's it's a learning experience. So being able to visualize those and get taken to those places just in your mind, it's like reading a good book. It's really, really. So that's my D and D story. And as it turns out, my next D and D update listeners will once again be a full weekend because as it turns out, both sessions are scheduled for the same week yet again. <laughs> Not on purpose. Full immersion. Yeah, it's completely coincidence. I'm looking forward to it because the last one was really cool. That's my geekery stuff. <laughs> Sorry for rambling. I totally... No, that's great to hear. Dan, how oh. about you? Well, my life in general is geekery, so... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I... um, Man, well, uh, basically, uh, kind of like what Noah said. <laughs> you know, his his game was my game, so yeah, it fit, it fit in well. It's fun to talk with you because you'll be like, I need to get more minifigs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I need to figure out how I'm going to use it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you do have quite the, the collection of them and quite the collection of map tiles and stuff. And I'm excited to see where things go. We'll we'll talk about that next in our table. We'll talk about the next edition of Dungeons & Dragons rules that are being developed. Mm-hmm. Play Dungeons & Dragons as an adult versus a young teenager or somebody in school who has lots more discretionary time. But anything else that any cool books or movies that you guys have checked out recently? I I haven't had any. I saw Moonrise Kingdom, but I don't think that applies here. It's just. I'm reading. Um, I'll go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say. Well, I mentioned it before, but uh, I have sailed into the third omnibus of the Gotrek and Felix uh, books, and you know, I just got to say, if anyone has is looking for something really good to get into that has that, you know, really fast pace. Um, and there's always something going on, what have you. Uh, and, and just those books are just plain awesome. You know, it's the best fantasy 
uh, series I've read in a very long time as far as just plain brain candy fun. And it's funny because this, this is a Warhammer licensed series of novels, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, and, it takes place in the old world, the fantasy Warhammer, not the 40K. Yeah, so like the main characters are what? There's one of the, the Mohawk Dwarf. <clears throat> yeah, he's a troll slayer. Uh, that's Gotrek. And Felix is, uh, it's kind of an interesting thing, too. Like, we're, Gotrek is just, you know, he's out to seeking that glorious death to atone for some crime that no one will even dare ask him about. And um, then there's Felix, who is, uh, Gotrek had saved Felix's life at the beginning of the book. And in payment, or kind of like to return the favor sort of thing, you know, Felix, um, when Gotrek found out that Felix was actually a poet, uh, he asked Felix to accompany himself, you know, Gotrek, on his adventures and to document his glorious death, basically to write an epic poem about um, how he fe- how he met a, a great battle and, and death in, a, in some sort of a, you know, facing some crazy enemy like some chaos demon or something. It's a really cool premise. Mm-hmm. And and what we were referring to earlier, listeners, is Dan's actually lent me one of the books. So well, it's like a compendium of the first three books. So I'm going to be checking that out soon and getting into that. I'm letting share my own uh, impressions of it. The the reason I brought up the license thing is sometimes. People are like, ah, oh, it's based on some kind of license or property. And with novels, that can be hit or miss. I mean, the Star Wars series of novels is a really good example. There are some that are really good, and there are some that are just mediocre. <clears throat> and it's really cool to hear when somebody takes a licensed property like that and really takes it to the next level and makes it really exciting and entertaining to read. And it's mm-hmm. not a fluff that's made to cash in on a on a license, essentially. And Mark, you started a new series of sci-fi books. I think you talked about it last week, but... So it was- yeah, yeah, it's all been destroyed. Uh, but I've been reading um, Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which has been around forever. But I just never—I think I tried to read it like in the early '90s, and I couldn't do it. And I am reading it now and just loving it. And um, I'm farther along than when I last reported. But I'd almost qual- quantify it as like um, horror science fiction or science fiction horror. Because some of the stuff the guy comes up with is just so icky. Um, like one of the stories is about a guy who has a daughter who was an archaeologist. She had, you know, they had raised her. She had grown up. She had gone off to be an archaeologist. She got hit by some kind of anti-entropic field that is causing her to age backwards now. And um, it's like the horror of the situation is that she forgets it's not like she's just getting younger physically, but mentally she forgets everything up to the point of what her current age is. Right. And so like every day she wakes up and she's like, why am I at home? And, and, or not, she's not that. She's like, why do you guys look so old and stuff? And, and now it's, I'm at the part of the book where she's like a seven week old baby. And it's, it's horrific. It's like, if you could imagine having to deal with that, it's just, and it, I mean, there's all these other things in it that are similar, but it's just really good writing, really original stuff, and I'm really enjoying it. And there's um, three more books in the in the series, so looking forward to getting through it all this uh, well summer and fall, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Listeners, if you have any cool books to recommend or recommendations for Dragon Con or stories that you have from Dungeons and Dragons, this would be a perfect time to. Share those with us and send them in to mail. M A I L. 
at channelmaster.com. And now, with much foreshadowing and preambling, we'll be getting into our roundtable discussion on Dungeons & Dragons, all of it, next. Roundtable time, Dungeons & Dragons. Wizards of the Coast, recognizing that the fourth edition of their rule set was not the most popular, has decided, hey, there's still room out there. There's still a, a market out there for which we could develop yet another rule set. And yet this time, the, the design of this rule set is going a little bit differently. And at this point, I would like to hand over the talking about this, <laughs> so to speak, the hosting to Dan, because you're pretty, you've been following this pretty closely and can speak to what's going on with them. Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, well, as far as the, the things that they are doing differently with this um, this edition versus some of the others is that, um, and and I think that this is something that a, a lesson that they took from Paizo. Now, what Paizo did um, was right around the time that fourth edition launched and Watsi as they call Wizards of the Coast, uh, retired 3.5, which was, you know, that previous edition. Um, that's when Paizo got to work on Pathfinder. And what they did was they opened it up and they had a public playtest. Like you could download the rules, uh, download a sample bestiary, um, the the core rules, be able to make up some characters and play your own games and stuff. They made that all available for free online via some PDFs. And they also sold very smart, you know, like as a business person, I say that's very smart <laughs> where they sold um, the beta rules as, as a paperback book too. Um, so you could get either one, you know, the, the printed edition that had nice art and stuff to go along with it or download it and just have it yourself. Mm. And, and in return for giving you all this free content and that beta, by the way, that, that, Playtesting was like 300 pages, 200 pages. Um, they did not skimp on giving away free content. Uh, yeah. So, it, and they they opened it up and they said, "Hey, you know, as like in return for giving you all this cool free stuff, please let us know what you think of the game." And they had these surveys and various other things where people would participate in this free and open playtest, and that turned into Pathfinder. Um, so where all of those people that bought the, uh, that first set, which by the way, sold out, you know, they totally sold out of that printing of the beta rules. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> so all of those people who bought the beta rules then went out and bought the regular core rule book and all that stuff again. So, wow. you know, that's the Big part that's true. Fans. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, that became Pathfinder and because those, the fans, participated in creating that game they really felt ownership over that game and were totally invested in it too like this is our game you know this is you know they they, they responded to our feedback you know they actually changed the stuff we asked them to change all that kind of stuff you know it's my game as well as paizo's game yeah um and then you know uh, once pathfinder was finished and released then slowly uh it gained steam um, for a few reasons, not just because uh, fourth edition was kind of divisive, because um, a lot of the people say that fourth edition feels kind of like an MMO, where uh, you know where they, you know, people can be really overpowered and stuff like that. Where you know some people said it's just not legal enough. 
um, you know, after several rounds uh, or several sessions with me, I think Noah can say that fourth edition is lethal. If, yes. if you if you do build the encounters correctly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> with hordes of monsters <laughs> surrounding <laughs> us on all sides, as usually happens, like how many minifigs is he going to put down? <laughs> we are going to die. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you got some help from uh, other things, you know, and that was pretty yeah. much the only way you made it out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, but anyway, uh, if you don't adapt your play style to each edition, then of course, you know, you're going to really highlight those differences in those editions. Yeah. Um, so if you're if you're playing fourth edition just the same way that you used to play 3.5, then yeah, it'll feel really nerfed, and uh, you know, certain things will feel really weird. Um, if you expect to rely on things like healing potions, well, you don't have that anymore. At least you do have those, but you also have things that are like healing surges, which are I kind of like to think of them as kind of like a pack of healing potions that you sort of have, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that, but anyway, uh, fourth edition came out and it really changed the mechanics. Uh, it made it um, really easy for, for DMs though, you know, compared to 3.5, 3.0 and various ones before DMing a fourth edition game is a lot easier because you do have some really clear guidelines and such on how to build your encounters and stuff. Um, you know, if you, a lot of people say it's very combat based. Um, and that's just another thing where I think you just need to adapt your style accordingly. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, it can be really combat based. Uh, a lot of the skills and a lot of the spells and various other things that you have are really focused on, that combat portion of things. So you really have to build out the, the role play, you know, that RP stuff on your own. That's up to you to really inject into your game, which which I try to do. Um, Yeah. I think it's good to have a a balance. mm -hmm. And if you just, if it just turns into dungeon crawl, use your awesome powers, keep killing things it can get monotonous, but if Mm -hmm. you break it up with cool sessions in the town and like an overarching story, it doesn't feel completely different from 3.5. That's been my experience is playing both 3.5 and 4.0 between you and, and Chris's games. And they don't feel completely different really at the end of the day, aside from the bloody thing and the saving throws and the healing surges. Um, those seemed new to me, but I'm not sure how much of that was truly new versus just an evolution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With D and D next, um, kind of getting back to what I mentioned about taking a lesson from Paizo, uh, D&D Next is being opened up for a full public playtest. And the first packet did come out in, was it late May, I think? Um, yeah, I think so. It was late May. They released the first playtest packets. Mm-hmm. And that's when we really got an idea of, all right, where they're taking this game. You know, uh, It really is kind of harkening back it feels a lot like like original and second edition to me um by the way i started with the original red box back in when i was a, a real youngling uh back in the 80s <laughs> <laughs> um so that's where i got my start with role-playing games and stuff like that you know uh i just kind of stared for hours at that awesome elmore art that was in that thing um but it, the, the new game 
feels, at least at this point in the beta test, you know, always keep keeping in mind that you can't make any like solid calls on this new edition yet because it's still in the beta test and, and yeah. we only got the first packet. There's another one that's probably going to be coming out with uh, Gen Con here in a week or so. Um, at least that's the rumors they say it's going to come out around then. And uh, Perfect we'll see. timing to have a bunch of people trying it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but the lethality is really bad in this this one uh, so far. Like, here's the just kind of giving you an idea of where it takes you back to and stuff. You know, like a gelatinous cube, you know, one of those iconic D and D monsters um, that's been around since '77 or something like that. You know, the original original stuff. Like, it's one of the Gary Gygax's things, and. Uh, you know, in fourth edition, it's got 156 hit points, um, and the kind of damage it'll do to you is like 2d6 plus 9. So it can do up to, like, you know... 21. Yeah, it's late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it can do up to, up to 21 damage to you. Uh, but you're doing that to a character where, at first level... You know, that was another criticism that a lot of people had on 4th edition is because everyone has buckets of hit points. So at first level, like a fighter can have like 30 hit points, 30-something yeah. hit points. Mm-hmm. Now, in the new edition, D&D Next, as they're calling it, as opposed to 5th edition, um, the Gelatinous Cube, it has 88 hit points. So it's like half of what it has in 4th in edition. So the math is totally different on this one. Uh, but it can do... Um, It'll do 1d6 plus 1 uh, when it hits you with, like, a slam. You know, 1d6 plus 1 bludgeoning damage plus another 1d6 acid, and it can engulf you. Um, If it engulfs you, then you're taking acid damage every round. Mm. It's basically digesting you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So that'll do, you know, a total of, like, 13 damage, at least on the initial hit, and then it's going to engulf you, too. The fighter starts out with a hit die of 12. So the max hit points that a fighter can have is 12 hit points. This thing could kill you in the first hit. Wow. That would suck. Yeah. Um, So, you know, a lot of people, that was the feedback on the first (laughs) rule set that came out. You know, everyone was like, oh, my God, I keep dying. (laughs) We want buckets of hit points. You know, the funny thing is, is Mark and I and Jason, we tried a board game version of D&D. It was a Castle Ravenloft thing. And we died like almost right off the bat. It's like we had hardly any hit points. And it just, every turn you take, another monster gets added to the board. And these monsters are strong. And it's yeah. just eventually become completely outnumbered and you all die. So, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure I'd feel about playing a game where you spend a couple hours creating a character and then it's like, all right, that's half the game. The next half of the game, you're going to die, and then we're going to start over <laughs> next yeah. week. Yeah. Uh, I heard that in the next vi- the next version of the playtest that's coming out, the next packet, they're going to rework some of the healing because everything was on a daily, basically. It was kind of like uh, going back to second edition or, or in some parts of third edition where you had some cantrips, they called them, where these kind of little spells like cast light and stuff like that that you that a wizard could do all the time or certain things that a cleric could do all the time um but in this new play test you know the first packet things were for the most part uh pretty much all you cast it once and you're done for the day yeah so you, your cleric 
was not going to be able to keep dishing out heels to you like he can in fourth edition. You know, he was going to dish out a couple of heels and then you were on your own against that gelatinous cube. So how do you feel about this, given your experience with the original and with 4.0 and so on? Do you feel good about the changes so far or do you just think it's interesting? Um, right now, I think it's just sort of interesting. Uh, some of the stuff that they've come up with, I like a lot. Um, like, for instance, advantage and disadvantage. Uh, if you say, like, you have a surprise round, you know, you sat there and you ambush um, like a, a group of goblins or something. Mm-hmm. And then that will give you advantage because they totally did not see you and you got this ambush off and you did it right. Uh, so that means, you know, you're going to be able to, in this at this time in this fight here, you're going to be able to roll two 20 sided die, two D 20. And you can choose the highest of the two results. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Disadvantage would be like, if you were the goblins, you would roll two D 20 and take the lowest of the two results. Uh, Oh, interesting. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Um, that's something I could even start using in our game right now. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I, I thought that was, cool is that you're willing to adjust the rules on the fly as we go from one session to the next just to make it as uh, interesting and lively and also efficient as possible but also you know still staying true to the game yeah yeah i really try to adapt it um to what everyone likes uh you know in the end my goal is that everyone has a good time and you almost get killed <laughs> uh, cuz i want i want something to be there that that you know always to have a little bit of uh of danger. gravity danger yeah. danger zone yeah <laughs> danger zone <laughs> because archer Thanks. is awesome archer reference <laughs> yes love it lana yes <laughs> i'm not uh, sure if we have mark with us he might be having some some kid issues in case people are wondering i am here Hey. So, uh, I'm not sure how much you... Have you been able to hear some of the caveats of this new rule system? Mark? Um, No, I'm sorry. (laughs) My my thing was, I I was... I mean, I just don't... I know, you know... Okay, let me start over. (laughs) I, I don't understand why they keep having to tweak the rules so much when the glory and the wonder of the whole experience with these games is, you know, having a dungeon master tell a story, you know, either an original story or from a module and knowing when to not follow the rules and when to just make the story, you know, really happen. So it's like all this angst over the mechanics and all these different things when it seems really easy to just, you know, take it take it in the right direction um you know it's almost like a natural kind of thing i think so obviously i think what i think is the companies you know especially wizards of the coast formerly tsr or whatever um they they just need to um make make money and i just wish that they would instead of revamping the rules and making everybody have to buy you know new dungeon master guides and player handbooks and everything i wish that they would just um instead focus on you know making it easier for good writers to come up with um modules and things like that and other supporting material 
Um, but maybe I just live in a in a crazy you know world. I I think the open sourcing of three five was like or three R whatever was really cool, and I think that Pathfinder looks really intriguing to me to to look into. I really like the idea of how they're going about it. Um, but you know, Dan, you know, tell me tell me what your thoughts are based on that because you're really actively in it, and I I have, I'm just I've been on the periphery for a long time. I, I'm not you know actively playing the game anymore. Not by choice so much as just time and you know commitments I have, but um, it uh, you know tell me tell me if I'm wrong there. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> well, you know, a new edition is it necessary? Mm, no, <laughs> like uh, you know, technically say, speaking, not really, because the the rules and such that they come up with, um, it's really just kind of like kind of like a you know sort of a guidelines for you to follow and stuff. You know, it's supposed to be a flexible system that you can do whatever you want with. Right. Um, and kind of like in this, there's a new podcast, a, a D&D podcast, you know, from Watsi themselves. But um, it's kind of funny because they're working with the guys from Penny Arcade and uh, PVP, uh, Scott Kurtz. Um, and at the PAX events they actually have a live D D game and this has been going on for the last two or three years. Uh oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. We're you know, Gabe and you know, Mike Krahulik and um uh Jerry Jerry Holkins, the the Penny Arcade guys, and then Scott, the PvP guy, and Will Wheaton, uh of <laughs> Star Trek fame. <laughs> um they all get together and they play this game with uh uh Chris Perkins who's really just an amazing DM. Um and he's been with uh wizards of the coast since the 3.0 3.5 days and you know um so anyway he's kind of like the dm that all dms try to be like and uh it's really funny it's a great game and stuff but what they were doing for this next pax is they're going to convert their their current heroes into D next characters mm. um and that's what this podcast is right here is when they're all getting together and they're saying, all right, here's the new, the new system and all this kind of stuff. Let's convert your guys over into the new system so you can play D and D next characters and in the next packs. And, um, they're level 10 characters by the way. And the current, um, D and D next packet and stuff only really deals with people up to like level three or something. Uh, oh. so we're getting, yeah, we're getting kind of a preview of like what happens with higher level characters too. Um, and one of the things that Gabe, you know, Mike asked them too, it's like, you know, do I need a new set of rules really to do anything I want? You know, how does that really improve upon the other set of rules that really allowed me to do anything I want? You know, you basically kind of like, you know, you're going to have to sell me on this. You know? Right, right. And that is what they're going to have to do. Um, one of the ways that they could do it, uh, and this is what I think they're really shooting for is to have a flexible system where people don't feel like they're being kind of pushed into one st style of play over another. Uh, and also not to feel like it's too crazy rules heavy. Uh, that's the one criticism I've heard about Pathfinder is that it's very rules heavy. You're going to get that core rule book and it's going to be about 700 pages and most of it is going to be like spells and feats and stuff. And you're right. There's so many choices that you can get into that sort of you know choice paralysis, you know, where you've just got so much, especially for beginners, 
Um, you know, I would recommend that any beginner who wants to check out Pathfinder go pick up the Pathfinder beginner box. It's a really cool set, but it's also a simplified set of rules, and it'll take you up to level five, which oh, we have cool. played. Yeah, you know, our game, uh, the session with Noah, um, the group with that Noah's in, we've had five games already, and people are just starting to, um, you know, transition into level four. So you're going to have a lot of play time available for up to level five in Pathfinder. Well, that sounds pretty cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. And there is a beginner set for uh, the current version, you know, 4.0, uh, fourth edition for Dungeons & Dragons 2. There's a box set, and they they kind of, like, revised or did a nostalgia take on the ancient red box from the 80s. Uh, oh, yeah. Using, yeah. Yeah. And it's not bad. It'll take you up to level 3. Um, I actually keep the the dm's book that comes with that uh that basic set with me when i'm doing our games too because it actually is a a very easy to follow um quick to reference sort of thing for the basics for fourth edition rules and stuff you know every now and then i kind of flip through that really quick because it's it's much easier to just find it there as opposed to like the big dmg guides and stuff right right oh that's cool that it's actually really useful yeah yeah um you know and the D&D Next, uh, the one way that they're really trying to do this is to have a modular system uh, where the core rule books are going to come out and they're going to have like the basics and it'll be supporting a kind of a blended sort of style of play where it's pretty much equal parts, um, equal emphasis on like story as well as, you know, combat. And then they're going to have these kind of optional rule sets, you know, great way to push more books out there and get more sales. <laughs> But right. these optional rule sets that'll be like, here's all kinds of combat options, and then here's all all kinds of more, uh, uh, all sorts of ways of building adventures uh, focused on story, and probably a whole lot of campaign settings, um, like you know cities and various things that really go into you know this is just what I'm kind of guessing, but I'm probably thinking they'll probably come out with all kinds of you know, adventure guides where, you you know, here's this city where you can have a whole campaign. Like, here's everything you need, uh, all kinds of intrigue and stuff like that, story ideas and plot hooks and various things to get you kind of started and thinking. Um, they've got a couple of guides like that in 4th edition. They had a bunch of guides like that in 3rd edition, not just from WotC, but from everyone, because everyone was allowed to publish uh, books that would support that system because it was totally open. Um and that's what made third edition so big. And and that's also what eventually gave Pathfinder its leg up on on Watsi. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm interested in watching some gameplay um of these at uh, Dragon Con just to kind of see what it looks like. Yeah. Be interesting. Yeah. Maybe maybe even playing one, I don't know. Depends on how it lines up, but it could be fun. I'm definitely doing that. Um, have, oh, what's it? No, I can't think of what it's called. The uh, the breakfast thing. Tracy Hickman's Killer Breakfast. Have you ever heard of that, Dan? No. So it's Tracy Hickman who was the co-author of the Dragonlance Chronicles and like a bunch of TSR modules of old, like Ravenloft and stuff like that. Uh, um, he has this thing called the Killer Breakfast, and it's just supposed to be hilarious. Where the everybody rolls like a character, so it's like 200 level one characters and he plays like this evil 
DM that just comes up with incredibly horrific ways to murder the the party. And it's all <laughs> while people are chowing down on breakfast and it's done with all kinds of there's all kinds of side activities going on. It's supposed to be just hilarious. So I signed up. It was like eight dollars to attend, so I signed up for that. Awesome. <laughs> Sadly, it's right during the parade for Dragon Con, so I'm going to miss the parade, but I'm, I've am i seen a couple of them now on video, and they look in- intense, but I think it's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hang with that dude, so mm-hmm. kind of got to do it. Anyone who comes up with Ravenloft has to be twisted. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so, really looking forward to that. So, Mark, when you play D&D, what rule sets or rule set singular did you actually play on? Well, I started out with the original Dungeons & Dragons, um, you know, box set. Um, and then it was just the first edition, uh, Advanced Dungeons & Dragons rules. Yeah, because I was reading this article over on Wired. I didn't know that before Advanced Dungeons & Dragons that there were two different kinds of Dungeons & Dragons. There was Dungeons & Dragons and then Basic Dungeons & Dragons and Advanced and then second, I used to th- I mistakenly thought advanced and second edition were one and the same, but apparently they're not. And there's third and three point five and four point oh. Oh yeah. So many rule sets. I, yeah. I can definitely understand your skepticism, Mark, of why would the world need another one? Why? Dan, why does the world need more? <laughs> uh, Dan, if you were just based on your initial impressions of D&D Next, which, of course, it's still got a ways to go before it's finalized. There's not even a tentative finalization or release date for it. If you were to recommend to someone who is wanting to get back into Dungeons & Dragons or this kind of role-playing, would you recommend they try the Python game, the Pathfinder, or do you think they would you recommend D&D Next of the two newest options that are going to be out there? Wow. I would want to... Probably, yeah, hard to say right now since it's still a work in progress, but, you know, as it stands right now, I would say go with Pathfinder mm-hmm. uh, because it's really heavily supported and all of those 3.0 and 3.5 books that you can find used on eBay for next to nothing can be converted and can work just fine in a Pathfinder game. Hmm, that's cool. Yeah. With a little bit of math, you're fine. Right on. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it might work. Yeah. So just getting a little bit more into the nostalgia slant, what is it? Uh, how has it been running and or participating in games, Dan, for you compared to back in the eighties to now? What are what are the main things that make it different? Um, man. Okay. Well, the food is better. Oh my gosh! <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it really beats the, the takeout wings that we used to get from the local pizza shop. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, it was original D and D and most of the time when I was young was spent playing palladium or palladium. Oh um, yeah. You remember that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Palladium and, uh, rifts and then the 1.0 versions of the of the world of darkness you know the vampire the masquerade and uh werewolf um and and those are the ones that i basically spent the time on uh and when i was young i never dm'd i think i did once and i sucked horribly <laughs> <laughs> um 
we had a, a, a dude who just loved DMing and he was really good. Um, he would basically, you know, turn his games into novels. You know, you felt like you were in the middle of, you know, an epic sweep uh, type of story, like, you know, like the Lord of the Rings novels or something, you know, where you're on this really glorious sort of uh, journey as a, as a being, you know, human or otherwise. Um, and that's something that, really kind of sank in for me too, because, and also, um, back in the day for the most part, it was all theater of the mind stuff too. Uh, we never had the battle mats and various other things. Um, mostly because, you know, we were kids and we just couldn't afford any of that stuff. Oh, you yeah. know, we, we'd grab a, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd spend the money on dice and that was about all we could do. <laughs> you know? Uh, you know, we would just like, like use the, you know, some sort of piece of paper or something and show you like, okay, you're standing here and these things have you surrounded here and here. What are you going to do? You know? Um, and these days, you know, you you can actually get those, those really cool toys that really help make it, uh, kind of, kind of cool in in certain different ways, you know, things like the battle mats and stuff like that, that you, you can actually pick up. Um, so, but the general feel of it has been consistent for me. Uh, yeah. I, I still like to have that grand sweep of a story. Um, I formal education wise, you know, I went into creative writing. Um, I always read fantasy novels, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so really it is kind of like writing a fantasy novel where it's not just you writing the story, but you have like four or five of your good friends that are in there kind of contributing to it, which makes it kind of special. Yeah. How about you, Mark? Did you ever DM, or were you always uh, an adventurer? No, I I kind of did equal duty as a DM or as a player. Um, I can never know. see you doing both because you've you've got a penchant for being creative. And, oh. I, and I just even when you're doing it sarcastically in emails and stuff like that. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, and you do voices, which helps. Uh, yeah, horribly. That's right. Or I do voices horribly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it was kind of interesting, you know. Um, I I I was always kind of a quiet kid, so it was it was kind of interesting with Dungeons and Dragons because I would do, you know, I'd start out as a player, and I would typically play uh, role play a character very different from myself, and. I found a lot of freedom in that. And then I, I always just always had all these, like Dan, you know, read a lot of science fiction and fantasy. And I always just had all these stories just bouncing around in my head, you know. Um, and so as a DM, I, I really had a lot of fun by, you know, just acting outlandish with some of the situations that the characters would come in. I wrote a lot of my, you know, I didn't really use a lot of modules um, as a DM, um, and I played a lot of different games besides Dungeons and Dragons. So I did like Traveler, um, City of or not City of Heroes, how funny uh, Champions, the actual RPG, um, Gamma World, Boot Hill. I was kind of like any anything that they came out with, I had to check it out, you know, for a certain number of years. But I always came up with like my own um, scenarios and um, you know modules, so to speak, for for people to go through and um i had a lot of i sometimes wondered if i had more fun coming up with the content for the module than the way it would actually you know kind of um come to fruition once the players were going through it got their um, hands on it 
<laughs> and it got to the point, yeah, it got to a point where for a long time I was just always the DM and I got kind of sad about that because I wanted to be a player and I wanted to just role play my own character and um, just kind of couldn't find anyone to, to do it. And uh, eventually, you know, I just kind of moved on to other things besides Dungeons and Dragons. But um, that was kind of one of the one of the things that I always was just looking, I was like desperately seeking a DM, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of fun. I, and I, I really, I, I have to say it's a, it's a very cool experience. Like you were saying, Noah, you visualize things. So it, it's like, as you're playing through it, it is so epic sometimes. And it is, you can just see it happening, you know, in your mind's eye, everything that's going to happen. And it's a lot of fun. There's nothing quite like the creativity that's unleashed when you go through these games. You know, I, I think that's why MMOs and, you know, RPGs, computer RPGs just can't quite compare to the to the, the full experience in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. It's great when I, – I really enjoy it when the people that – or in our group, they do things that I'm like, wow. (laughs) Right. I I totally did not expect them to do this. Okay. What are we going to do? You know, (laughs) exactly. Like how Dinara loves to shift. And then she does crazy shit when she shifts. Like, like, you know, I had this whole idea, like, you know, here's this, this statue that's kind of in a way pointing where you want to go. And, you know, and there's like a, a turtle that comes up on, in this, this pond, you know, I'm just, at that point, I was kind of like just describing the the ambiance of the place. Yeah. yeah, like here's this, and the turtle comes up and everything. You, know, you see all this kind of stuff, and then she's like, "I changed into the turtle. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go swim over to him. <laughs> I'm going to ask him where this stuff is <laughs> because he knows, you know, because he lives here, you know. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then so, you're role playing a turtle, and you're having to come up yeah, with a voice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did too. You know, like hello. You know, <laughs> <laughs> well, so that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you know, just kind of crazy stuff that that just happens during a session. You know, and and one other time, like um, in someone else's game, uh, they used one of the players as a weapon. Um, like somebody was playing this half ogre, and because this paladin was lawful good and he was insisting that he couldn't attack this dragon because it hadn't hurt him yet. Uh, he grabbed wow. the paladin by the feet and used the paladin actually as a bludgeon to hit the dragon with the paladin. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now that's a good use for a pally. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. So Mark, when you were a, a DM, I'm kind of curious uh, because when I was talking to one of my, I don't know what to call him my party members and the changeling game, he had just, he just finished DMing a game before this changeling game started. And he talked about how he's like, I've got to wrap I'm wrapping up the campaign right now. I've got two characters to kill off. <laughs> and he's like talking about the player characters. He was going to kill them off as part of the grand finale. And then afterwards he's like, yeah, I made one of them cry. So I consider it mission accomplished. I'm like, Oh Good my Lord. God. <laughs> and it turns out that he's got a, a really long friendship with that particular person and he knows how to push her buttons and make her upset. So that's what oh. he did. And so it made me wonder, I'm like, Mark, were you a, a were you ever a cruel DM or were you more of a, an accommodating DM where you didn't let people die? Yeah, I was fairly accommodating because it, it's just like, you know, I based all the 
the DM job, I kind of based it on a on like what a novelist does when they write a good you know fantasy adventure. So if like the players, if if I made it really easy for the players to get killed or kill themselves, then I was felt like I was failing at the story. Nonetheless, I can remember a couple of times where the way things just went down and the way that the you know the players were acting, it was only appropriate for their character to die. Um, <laughs> And so then I allowed him to, you know, re-roll a new character that was going to somehow be introduced, you know, later um, to give it, you know, so that this, the group would have consistency and everything. But, you know, it's like, well, if you're really going to push it and this is really how you're going to do it and, you know, it makes sense, then it was not I wouldn't I wasn't totally afraid of um, ending somebody's character's career, life, whatever. <laughs> And I did it. I do remember two specific instances. So one was in Gamma World, and I think one was Dungeons and Dragons. So, just made sense. Yeah. Dan, you ever do that? Um, if it if it's a part of the story, uh, and if it just makes sense, um, yeah. I mean, people can die. Uh, that's okay. Um, it can be sad. It can be really kind of. You know, distressing <laughs> for yeah. for the given person, you know, if they're really invested in their character. But you know that that is just kind of the way it goes sometimes, you know. And yeah. I would let them totally re-roll up in a, another character, and I'll find a way of introducing them into story. Like I I find ways of introducing new people as we add them to the group too. Like you know, there was another girl that was added to our group a, a couple of sessions ago, and you know, I, I just came up with a you know pretty cool way of working her into the group. Um, and that can be done, you know, um, I took a, as far as like a general sort of attitude toward the story and toward, um, how to inject some emotion into it too. You know, I, I take a few lessons from writers like George R.R. R. Martin, who, really is not afraid to kill off the characters you like. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> He's really not. <laughs> no. Uh, like in the last session that we had, um, it was really kind of an emotional thing where these two dwarves that were really helpful and, you know, the one guy was kind of like basically a, a stepfather for one of the people in the party. Uh, they ended up basically sacrificing themselves to make sure that the rest of the party could get away. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, they died fighting on this bridge, uh, just holding them off long enough so that the rest of the party could escape. Yeah. And they were like our only mentors or Mm -hmm. sources of quests essentially in the game. Yeah. They're their only friends. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I, and that, that was definitely one of the more cinematic moments I felt we were playing is like, it was something that I could really see. I'm like, wow, this is such a, a cool moment in the storyline. And it just makes me excited for upcoming sessions. I was curious. Uh, and you, 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 you both have alluded to this in parts already. Uh, but thinking about if, if you were to, or if you are currently involved in uh role playing like this, do you feel any current books, pop culture stuff, or even video games, maybe experiences in Dota or World of Warcraft or, or whatever, would have an influence on how you play a, a new Dungeons & Dragons game or build out a story. Go ahead, Mark. 
Oh no, you go. You go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, <laughs> um, I read a lot, uh, and all of it really kind of comes into play. Um, I try to pay attention to the stories I really like, and <laughs> then I try to build things, uh, adventures and stories for adventures that kind of taking it as, as a player standpoint too. Like if, if I were in the group, you know, would this be fun for me? Uh, you know, would I want to be a part of the story? And, you know, that's kind of like one of those litmus tests, I suppose that I hold up for myself when I'm trying to put stuff together. Like, is it challenging? Is there Mm -hmm. a variety of challenges? You know, it can't all be just, you're supposed to kill this shit now. You know, 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 sometimes the best thing to do is to just get the hell out of there. Um, You know, other times uh, you have to figure out how to get in. Uh, And then there there can be just moments where things will just reveal uh, stuff about the characters, too. Um, There was a moment like that in like two sessions ago where, you know, there were a room with several mirrors in it. They were able to pull these checks you know they got really lucky with the dice and stuff and they had some high rolls and so i was like okay yeah you kind of get an idea from your knowledge of the arcane arts that you know these this these mirrors here have something to do with showing you something about yourself and you know when i said that noah's like well i'm gonna stand in one you know (laughs) like like, bam i'm there you know (laughs) i'm going over there i'm standing that one you know not the teleportation one you know that's lame i'm just gonna go somewhere there this this is different and uh so it's it's that kind of stuff that can happen um that i like to throw in there where you know it, it won't necessarily propel the story forward immediately but maybe it'll reveal something that will come to pass or something that will be somehow important uh, later on down the line, provided you live. <laughs> That's <Yes>. right. Should <laughs> Which, you survive? Given our battles is not always a, a, a certainty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially when we're trying to kill each other, as the thief does sometimes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, for, um, so a couple of closing questions for each of you. So for... For Mark, what do you think either it would take for you to consider getting back into playing D&D again and or what are the biggest hurdles keeping you from doing so? Um, With me, it's just my uh, just the age of my kids. I think it just makes it hard for me to set aside the time right now. Mm-hmm. That's all. I have the definitely have the interest to do it. So. I think when they're a little older, it'll be a lot easier for me to to do it. When they're even older, I'll make them play with me. So That's what I was gonna. There you go. <laughs> yeah. What a cool yeah. family session that will be. Oh yeah, it should be interesting because my son does not ever stop talking. So <laughs> talking is a free action in 4E too. Yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah, he'll take it. He'll exploit that. So. <laughs> and Dan, for you, now that you have been getting quite a bit of experience doing DMing, whereas in the past it was something that you kind of shied away for. Do you, do you have any suggestions or further <coughs> in terms of taking on that kind of role for people out there who might be considering getting back into playing these types of games? Well, uh, in general, the world needs more DMs. Uh, <laughs> if you at all want... Masters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
because players are really easy to find. Uh, usually, even people who've never played before are willing to give it a shot. Um, so if if you ever had an inclination that you might want to um, be the one to help tell the story, or at least give the framework so that the players can begin to explore a story, um, you know, go for it. Uh, there are a lot of helpful videos. Um, like there's this one guy on YouTube, uh, Esper, and you can probably like search it on there, like rep, Reps Esper, I think is his username, but if you just look up Esper Dungeon Master, it'll probably come up. Um, he's got uh, some videos on there that are that are really helpful uh, and really well well put together ways of kind of like DMing tips and stuff like that for for even if you wanted to just try it, you know, for the first time ever, which is almost what I did um, putting together the group, <laughs> you know, six or seven months ago. Um, I had such an awesome time in Chris's group. And then when he moved away, I was like, oh, crap, you know, <laughs> like, well, well, maybe I'll give it a shot, you know, <laughs> and uh, I'm really glad that I did. Um, you know, it's a lot of fun. You know, some people think that maybe if you're just DMing, it's it's you're not going to be able to, to play. But if you have NPCs, you know, you get to play the NPCs and you get to play the monsters and you get to play the bad guys. You're going to be playing all the time. That's right. <laughs> it's always your turn. <laughs> That's right. And you can decide if it's not somebody else's turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, you can wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dan, very much for joining us for this episode of, the, of Channel Massive. Yeah, it was good. Really good having you, man. Had a good oh. time. Yeah. Thanks a lot good. for having me. I look forward to upcoming D&D sessions, upcoming LAN parties. I'm sure there will be more of those. And listeners, this is, I know we didn't have an episode last week, but we've definitely made up for it this week with a super huge, long episode, and we hope you enjoyed it. Thank you, Mark, for being able to, to stay up with us as well, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. For kids who are, are not quite ready to be asleep yet. Totally. <laughs> but yeah, as always, listeners, let us know what you think, send in your emails or your, your thoughts, requests, and we should be back again next week.